Jigsaw likes to book himself front row seats to his own sick beings. He doesn't want us to cut through our chains. He wants us to cut through our feet. Most people are so ungrateful to be alive. Not anymore. You are a drug addict. Do you think that is why he picked you? He helped me. Don't believe Adam's lies. Hello, listeners. We want to play a game. For years, you've enjoyed this podcast, taking in all the background knowledge and the analysis of your favorite horror franchises. But have you ever asked yourself, why haven't they covered one of the most successful franchises of the past 20 years? Well, today, you have your chance, a choice you might say to make. Do you have what it takes to watch along with us and to dig into the guts of the Saw franchise? Listen or die, make your choice. But I wouldn't be able to do this alone. I have to have my followers, my acolytes with me, as you would. And up first, we have from Bloody Disgusting, as well as the co-host of the Movies for Life podcast, Mr. Brian Kuyper. Brian, how are we? Doing good. Glad to be an acolyte here. Uh, a disciple, with... an acolyte. Oh, yeah. I love it. I haven't uh, watched these in a long time, so visiting them again, um, I actually watched the first two and a half so far. And then tapped out or just ran out of No, time? no. Well, I, I wake up really, really early, <laughs> and it's it was a, 
you know, I don't intend to on, it's a Saturday. I don't intend to do that. I woke up at like four 15 mm-hmm. and I had already watched saw. I watched saw two this morning and I was starting to get tired towards the end of it. And I turned on saw three and I fell asleep, you know? Okay. But I had, I, I was like, I'm okay. I'm going to keep going though. I'm it's Excellent. been enjoyable to kind of give them another look after all these years. It's been Excellent. A yeah. Yeah. You're ahead of me. You're definitely oh, yeah? ahead of me so far. Yeah. I, um, chose to only watch this one before the show Mm -hmm. and as i've mentioned before i've only seen the first two in jigsaw and this will be the weekend that i start shotgunning them but we have someone else with us today we are not alone here we have the person here i'd say the person responsible for us covering this series when we uh first had them on for phantasm uh, we enjoyed them so much. We're like, hey, uh, what other movies do you like? And this was the first series that was mentioned, I believe. So in order to keep them a part of the show, I said, okay, it looks like we're going to be covering Saw next year. She has literally written the book on this subgenre. She is, I think she has a Jigsaw fan, get jiggy with it tattoo somewhere, <laughs> possibly. Miss Ario Patreon only. Patreon. Well, really was in a bad spot. It's like the forearm, or maybe across the knuckles. You have jig and saw on the other hand, which would be, oh my god, we need to have you do that. Okay. Okay, sure. you have to do that, Miss Ario Power Shop. Ario, how are we? You actually got my name wrong. My name is very fucking confused. What's your name? Wait. <laughs> oh, nice. Nicely done. Yeah. And I never judge people for what. They're like, you could like movies about being covered in peanut butter and having 15 hooker orgies <laughs> in. It's okay. Yes. Oh, Love the that. most memorable line. Love that. We'll definitely talk about some of these lines and whether or not they feel like they're in a different movie. But what are we here to talk about, Ariel? Oh, we're going to talk about Saw. Oh, the nice. original. And I have my emotional support reverse bear trap wow. with me next to me for this conversation. And I feel like you've mentioned where you've shown that off before, but where Probably. did you actually get that? It's Is my that proudest from... thing. Um, there's an Australian company called Via Vision, and they did a collection um, that's like the Blu-ray box set, and it comes in this really nice case, and it comes with a reverse bear trap, and it's just got like a bunch of special features. It's got a few 4K discs. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it is Australian, you do have to have a region-free Blu-ray player or a PS5 to play them in the United States. Um, but uh, very worth it for me to get okay. the reverse bear trap. Excellent. The only real horror prop that I had, like a client had a, 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 a one of my clients had a client who did a lot of special effects work and design in the 80s in early nineties. And I was gifted one of the puzzle boxes from Hellraiser two. Now it wasn't a working puzzle box. It was just like six sides of like a um, die cast plastic. Basically it wasn't one you could open or do anything with. Well, That's good. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. I guess Um, it survived many moves, but now I can no longer find it. Oh no. But we're not covering Hellraiser, so whatever. (laughs) Not never. Well, let's start with our initial 
thoughts on this film before we kind of dive in to the background here and you know why we're talking about it and Ariel, since this was your choice mm-hmm. would you care to kick things off and like what in particular like this first movie meant to you yeah um I've talked about this before, so I won't go into it too much, but like in my life, there's a before the Blair Witch Project and after the Blair Witch Project, like seeing that movie in the theater was like literally life changing for me in terms of like, holy crap, movies can do this. Saw is the closest I've come to feeling that way again, because I was really invested in like the characters and in the story, but also super intrigued by the creepy traps and like the, the look of the film. I had never seen anything like that before with the grittiness. Mm-hmm. And then the twist at the end, like blew my mind then still blows my mind now. And that's not the only good thing about the movie. And so I don't want to give it too much credit but I really think like it's so well executed that for it to still impact my emotions almost 20 years later says something really special. It's a great reveal. And I think you're right in no small part, like that first moment when Jake saw kind of like lurches up on all fours. Yes. People Mm -hmm. were talking about that and people talking about that is what made more people go see it the next week and why and and it's no small part of why it was such a success in the theaters Mm -hmm. so brian how about yourself well this came out when i wasn't seeing a lot of horror i uh had just gotten married my wife is (laughs) um as i've shared multiple times uh is not a horror fan like at all and like got physically ill when we watched Midsummer together, uh, like literally. So um, anyway, th- it's just not her thing. So, um, and I was kind of avoiding, I guess, stuff that had even like the whiff of being, I guess, extreme horror. I just wasn't, um, that wasn't where I was at the time. So I finally saw this on Blu-ray. <laughs> um, I, I think, I think the final chapter was about to come out was of when I finally saw the first movie and I just actually kept going. I, I, I watched all of them um, just right in a row. Uh, and then the only one I've seen in the theater though is spiral. Uh, and I'll, I'm sure I'll see saw 10 in the theater too, but um, you know, it was some, but my initial reaction was, Oh wow. that That's not what I expected. You know, I expected what, it had been labeled later, you know, torture porn, whatever. And this is not that to me. This is something, this first one in particular, something different than even what the series, rest of the series became in a lot of ways. Um, It's um, intriguing and mysterious and you're, it's a puzzle. And I I liked that a lot about it. And so um, I just kind of, went on a tear where I watched them all and really enjoyed them. Cause I was pulled along by the story as it, as it goes along too. And, you know, um, that was more intriguing to me. Everyone's talking about the traps and the extremity of it and stuff like that, which was fun and fine. You know, I have no problem with that, but, um, it was really just the way the, the endings sort of draw you into the next one mm-hmm. to me. And so I've, I've 
just kind of went on a terror. Just had to watch them all. So where you have like, so you watch them all like in very close proximity. I did. Yeah. To one another. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious because I am someone who tapped out after part two and then returned for uh, Jigsaw. And I'm wondering where both of you felt like the shift because like my under, and I feel like as early as saw two, there's a pretty seismic shift in terms of like the tone oh, totally. of the yeah. series and like what it's going to become known for being much more less emphasis on character in like the mystery, which would be hard to pull off for seven films. Like it would be really sure. hard to do. Like, I wonder who this is for every movie. Mm-hmm. When do you feel like the tone of this series begins to shift and becomes like the saw that we associate with the title as opposed to what this first movie is? Saw two. Well, I think you- <laughs> That's my opinion. My opinion too is a big shift in, in my opinion. But yeah. I agree with that. I think Saw 3, because mm-hmm. it was again written by Juan and Juanel, goes back to feeling a little bit more character driven. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then after that, they all kind of feel more like two. I do think the fourth one does a really good job of balancing some nasty, gnarly traps with some good character work. Um, but we'll get to that in a few yeah. weeks. I thought you were going to say with some musical numbers, which would have shocked me. <laughs> like, Soft no. Force, a musical, that would have been amazing. You know, every good franchise has to go to space. Every good franchise has to have a musical number mm-hmm. at some point. So we'll get there. Yeah. We'll get there eventually. I remember catching this on theaters during its initial run. And I just looked up as like Brian was talking. I'm like, when? Because I don't think I would have caught it opening weekend because I would have been engrossed in the world series but that actually was right before this it was the two thousand october 2004 like what a month like, <laughs> seriously started dating my wife like we were dating for a few months when it seemed to be getting serious by october was playing in a hardcore band that got to go to canada to play some shows the red Sox win the world series and saw wow. comes out yeah. Um, it might have been like a top 10 month in my life. Like absolutely. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. What a time, what a time to be alive. And I remember being genuinely excited to see this movie, like the trailers, you know, each of them kind of highlighting one of the different traps were very alluring to me. Like the poster art, like that kind of like dingy grimy look with like a severed foot on it. I'm like, I want more of that. And at this time, I remember there was like a regular group of us that were going to horror movies, like anything new that was coming out with horror, like there were probably about six of us going together to meet up and go see it. Like every Sunday night we met at my place and we would watch like a double feature of horror movies on the projector. We'd grill and then anything new that came out, we were going to. It was just an absolute blast. And now I prefer going to movies alone. But back then, it was just give me as many people as possible to go see it with. I definitely enjoyed it. Like I really like the first Saw movie enough so that, and we'll talk about we talk about Saw 2, that I drove with friends to watch Juan and Wanal talk about Saw at a Fangoria convention ahead of Saw 2. Did not expect it to be like a touchstone of the genre. Like if you were to tell me this is going to be one of the most successful franchises in horror movie history, 
I would have been so very surprised by that, mm-hmm. but I was definitely enjoyed this and was really gobsmacked by the ending like that. That uh, final reveal is great. It still works. Um, and I think we were ready for a change of pace in horror. We'll talk about it more when we talk about like the background of the movie, but it just felt like there was a lot in the air around this time and what was going on, not only with genre cinema, just like the world we were living in that created a lot of genuine excitement for this movie. And it still holds up like 20 years later, it's still a very powerful movie. And like the weaker points, like the acting, I would say like the acting is definitely not a strong suit in this. It lends to like a kind of a quaint, do it yourself charm and that mm-hmm. you can have like good movies can have bad acting if there are another enough positive elements in the other areas. So here's where I'm handing things off for a bit. This is normally where I will go on a huge monologue on the background of the movie, but I have a person here. We have Ariel who I think knows this movie like the back of her hand. So can you <laughs> talk a little better. bit? Probably even better. Yeah. So <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about how this came together? I would absolutely love to. And can I just say, when I started listening to The Pod and the Pendulum a few years ago, and I was like, wow, this is really great. I wonder if they'll ever do Saw, if I can find my way on there for mm-hmm. one of the episodes. Little did I know. Living so, the dream. <laughs> I'm, it's truly. Um, but enough about me. So I am going to spend some time on background especially for this movie because of what it kicked off. And, you know, we might not need to go into as much background for the future sequels, just kind of depending. So we're going to get into a lot of it today. Um, There are no books yet on the making of Saw that I know of. There is a, a documentary that came out in 2015 called Game Changer, and that has a lot in it. Um, and there's a lot of good stuff in the commentary and, um, Juan and Winnell have been really good about like giving a ton of interviews over the years. So there's information out there. There are a couple of books about analysis that I wanted to call out. One is to see the saw movies by James Astio and John Wallace, and it covers other films that came out around the same time. And then the cutting edge Philosophy of the Saw Films by C.J. Patton. I personally really enjoyed this read. Mm -hmm. And Mike, you also mentioned here, um, Torture Porn in the Wake of 9-11, Horror Exploitation and the Cinema of Sensation by Aaron Michael Kerner. I have read that one too, um, or at least skimmed it. So Yeah, it's like one chapter on Saw, and then it goes like into a lot of the other movies of the subgenre and it's a it's good focus a lot on video games and saw like the video game aesthetic of saw which i found interesting in that chapter but yeah yeah. so james wan and lee winnell are the writers and directors and this is how their film came to be so they met in film school at the royal melbourne institute of technology university And they were inspired by the Blair Witch Project, which is my favorite movie of all time, and Darren Aronofsky's Pie. They wanted to make a really, like, high-impact, low-budget film that made people feel something. 
they thought the cheapest script to shoot would involve two actors in one room, which does make sense. Um, one else said, so I actually think the restrictions we had on our bank accounts at the time, the fact that we wanted to keep the film contained helped us come up with the ideas in the film. And as we talk you know, about more aspects as a movie, there's a lot of places where you can see their budget constraints had an impact on how things come out. So what other films have ended up benefiting from budget restrictions in the long one? Well, I think um, I, being being the classic horror columnist uh, resident here at Pod and the Pendulum, I got to mention the Val Luton movies uh, from the 40s uh, at RKO. They were basically after Citizen Kane bombed at the box office, they just used the existing sets from Ambersons, from Citizen Kane, and they made a bunch of horror movies that never showed anything. And those movies are, they've obviously over in recent years have gained quite a renaissance, um, but they're really effective. I mean, there are nine movies and most of them are just, there's something in the shadows and they're, they're really good movies, all of them. Yeah. I, I'm 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 a big fan of those. For example, yeah, I think horror in general works better when the lack of funds allows creative individuals to get creative. Absolutely. I think the two best examples I can think of that would be like Sam Raimi in the original Evil Dead movie, yeah. where they are building everything from scratch they are engineering everything you have like bruce campbell who's taking on multiple roles mm -hmm. uh not only in, in front of the camera but behind it as well as a producer and it makes you get creative it makes you yeah. have to make compromises jaws isn't necessarily a small budget film but because of the lack of tech yeah, yeah comparatively yeah. I mean, it was like nine million dollars when, yeah. yeah. when you think of like that it would be that's like the craft budget on like a mid tier movie and a comedy sure. now, right? Like a Will Ferrell comedy probably sets aside that just for craft services. <laughs> right. Yep. Um, but because like you didn't have like working technology, you had to find like creative ways to get around things. And I think about some of my favorite, I say recent indie horror affair, but these are now movies that are like a decade old. But one of my favorite indie horror movies is a little title called The Battery. Love which the was Battery. Made for, oh my God, I love that yeah. so much. Yeah. Battery's um, good. It is made for about $6,000 and you wouldn't know it by looking at it. It looks gorgeous. And they had to do little things like, oh, we can't film 50 zombie extras outside of our car when we're stuck in it. So what if we um, have a thing where we like, put up i think it was like bed curtains all around the interior and then someone will shake it and we'll pipe in some sound things yeah. like that uh resolution from benson and moorhead their first mm -hmm. film which is like another two people in a single location movie yeah and you have to really focus on the story and the performances and not like cheap budget tricks. And it's one of my favorite movies. Even their most recent something in the dirt is very mm -hmm. much that kind of thing. They filmed that during COVID. So they yep. couldn't have yeah. more than two people in a room at a time yeah. to do it. So yeah. um, can I, I throw know. in also um, to, to the biggest titles ever uh, in horror 
Avatar. Um, well, right. Uh, sure, sure. But I was uh, Night of the Living Dead and mm-hmm. the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yes. Are both. Uh, and, you know, they have to work around all of these things. I mean, and a lot of it comes down to the staging, the editing, um, make those just horrifying, but they were made for nothing. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, and when you think of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, because of like the squalid conditions yeah. they were filming in, like they're using real food that is yeah. literally oh. rotting away in a non-conditioned, airtight room in the Texas heat that you go mad, like Gunnar Hansen talked about, literally losing his mind mm-hmm. filming that scene. And it comes out in the performances, like that mayhem isn't faked at a certain point you're no longer acting yeah. um, even the, the original nightmare in elm street oh yeah which 1.2 million right and, and, and most west, yeah and west craven had to like almost fist fight bob shea for mm-hmm. every penny of that movie like that was bob shea mm-hmm. pouring his own money into it yep. and you know i don't think anyone here is going to argue that that's not a work of just pure genius right very much so yeah Horror in particular allows for, because a lot of what works in horror is you can fill in the blanks. Yes. Yeah. What you you don't see can be more frightening. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you were mentioning uh, Hitchcock before. And so Psycho, I think, is a good example, too. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hitchcock. Mm -hmm. And in that case, Hitchcock purposefully um, restrained the budget so he could have greater control. Yeah. So um, I think that's a, that's a good example too. That's another great one. Yep. Filming yeah. on cheap black and white stock. Yep. Doing everything in the back a lot, bringing yep. his TV crew on with him. Mm-hmm. We'll talk more about that in 2024. Mm-hmm. Spoiler. Count me in on that if, you can. Oh, if we can. I love those movies. All of them. Absolutely. Yeah. So can we officially call Saw Hitchcockian? Is that what we're doing now? I think we're doing it. I lock it in. Stone Cold Lock. Hmm. Uh, there are elements, are I think. Like, no. <laughs> I, I, there are elements, I think, uh, thematically at least, that I would, I could connect with Hitchcock. Um, I think from a filmmaking style, he's doing something completely different, though. So, it's, you know, yeah. Hitchcock didn't do the handheld thing and various things like that so much. So it's a little bit different. But I thought of that yeah. because it's something I was listening to another show where one mentioned that he wanted to film something Hitchcockian. And I think what holds it back for me is in most Hitchcock films, the audience knows more than the characters. Mm. Like Hitchcock will kind of pull back the curtain for the audience while the characters struggle. I'm thinking of like Vertigo and Kim Novak's reveal through the use of that letter. Thinking of films like Sabotage where you know where who the bad elements are before your protagonists do, you often have a much better idea of what's going on. And the and the, the what makes a Hitchcockian is like, oh, how is this going to resolve itself? Like, how is mm-hmm. everything going to come together? We're here. I think with Saw, you have just as much knowledge as the characters do. And I think that's one of the film's strengths is that you are, as you're watching this, trying to deduce what's going on as well. And it's Mm -hmm. less about, oh, how are they going to get out of this? But you're also trying to figure, how are they going to get out of this? Like, what could they possibly do? 
Yeah. What do you think makes it Hitchcockian though? Where do you, cause like there's an argument for it. And I know it's one that Juan has said, what do you feel <laughs> makes it so? I was just riffing trying to say mm-hmm. something controversial. I cannot, <laughs> uh, gauge whether or not something is Hitchcockian. I wouldn't dare. This is a, we'll have one of our mutual friends kind of like pop in and she can give a spiel on it. And right. And yeah, then, you know, pop out again. If we no, I just to wanted to, to say something. Give a controversial sound bite for the episode okay. of me saying Saw was Hitchcockian. Oh, I'm sure we'll have plenty before we're done. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, I'm sure we'll have plenty. That's what we come here for. Yeah. So one pitched the idea to 1L of two men chained, chained to opposite sides of a bathroom with a dead body in the middle and trying to figure out why and how they got there. By the end of the film, they realized the person lying on the floor is not dead, and he is the reason they're locked in the room. So they have that general idea. Question. Yes. When Juan pitched that, did he hold up the diorama that we see? (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't think so. That would be amazing. That would be a diorama. Who doesn't love a diorama? Everyone loves a good diorama. So the screenplay was written by Winnell, who co-created everything like they really did everything together in this movie um it was written in 2001 but they had some failed attempts to get the script produced in australia so they were encouraged to go to los angeles to where um they just might find i don't want to say more open-minded but just like different kinds of movies were being made Mm -hmm. in la than they were in australia at the time they talked about trying to get money from because i guess like just like in britain and ireland and canada the government will often fund mm-hmm. feature films yes. i know in canada like they have to have some sort of like not patriotic but some sort of cultural value in order mm-hmm. for them and i know like one all in particular said like it's a lot of it is who you know and they're like specific kind of movies are going to yes. get made and they just didn't have those connections at that time yeah and so they um, shot the short film, which essentially is the reverse bear trap scene, but Lee Winnell playing that part and shopped that around with the finished script to help them get people interested in the movie. Like, look, we have this whole script. Here's a section of what the movie's going to look like. Do you want in on this or not? Get in on the ground floor. So this was successful, and in 2003, producers from Evolution Entertainment were attached, and um, they started the genre label Twisted Pictures. And I know every time I see Twisted Pictures at the beginning of a movie with the nail and the barbed wire, I get super stoked. Like, I just know that I'm going to enjoy that movie after Mm -hmm. I see that logo. I get really excited. It's like getting the Canon logo or in the eighties for me, I think it was Orion pictures oh, Ryan. Uh, oh, mm-hmm. or like Blumhouse. You see like the spinning, the spinning chair, chair and the haunted yeah. girl in that room. Uh, now probably monkey paw would yes. be, yeah, mm. as well. You get mm-hmm. that, get the warm and fuzzies. It's amazing how a logo can kind of give you the warm and fuzzies. It's true. Yeah. I, I remember. It. It's starting to happen to me with neon. Yeah. 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 That's a, they've released some great titles this yeah. the, recently. Yeah. Um, I remember it was um, 2001 
one of my good friends, Chad, and I went to see Jay and Silent Bob strike back. And like the View Askew logo came up and he clapped his hands once, turned to me and said, let the dick and fart jokes begin. (laughs) And it was so giddy. And it's one of my favorite movie going memories. That's so cool. Saul was given a really tiny budget and it was shot in 18 days, which definitely didn't have any impact on how the movie turned out. (laughs) Yes, it did. Um, It was first screened at Sundance in 2004. And uh, Mike, I think you put a note in here about the test screenings. Yeah, I was watching the documentary you mentioned, the which I didn't know existed until you posted it, a game changer. And it's available on YouTube, which is great. Um, and the producers who I found really engaging in the documentary, like they were really fun to listen to, like talk about this come together. They're like, they had a test screening, like just outside Los Angeles and the scores came back and they were so high because a test screening is typically you just, it's kind of come one, come all. You don't necessarily target an audience for it. It's whoever wants to show up that day to see some secret movie. And the numbers they got back were so high that the producers are like, these numbers are obviously fake. There's no way people enjoyed this movie this much. Like this is not, this is just going to be a little like direct to DVD movie. It can't be as, as good as they're saying. No way. So they had another screening outside Vegas because they thought like the numbers were artificially boosted and those numbers are even better. Mm. And I think that's when they said, okay, maybe we should, go theatrical with this movie. Yeah, it made a huge difference because they were, they were thinking like, this will be a great home release. Mm -hmm. And then they were like, wait a minute, we really have something here. Um, To that point, so it was released in North America, October 29, 2004 by Lionsgate. The franchise has made over a billion dollars at this point. So... Yeah, they were on to something. Um, Saw received mixed reviews from critics, but it grossed $103.9 million worldwide. And just as a side note, according to a list I found, this is the fifth highest grossing horror franchise of all time. For a long time, it was the first, like the number one. But now The Conjuring sits in the number one spot, which is also James Wan. James Wan, yeah which we also previously covered on the pod and the pendulum. So go back and listen to that. Um, but this movie makes crazy or this, this whole franchise makes crazy money. It's licensed to print money. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Just like the other thing I looked up was how it did on DVD because not, you know, this was a time period where physical media was all of the rage. So, and, the first five Saw movies together do something like three, almost 500 million in DVD sales, uh, like some re- ungodly number. Like it's a super high number. This first movie in terms of like DVD and video sales and rentals pulls in another $70 million, which between like all of the regular and special and collector editions, like this movie alone said that, Again, it is 60 times its production budget just Mm -hmm. in the home video market. Yeah, because this was, you know, 2004. 
was still at a time when you could just dump a bunch of extra stuff on a DVD, call it special features, and we would all eat it up. I mean, mm-hmm. I still do. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I Last weekend, I drove three hours to Bridgeport, Connecticut to visit the Vinegar Syndrome store. Oh, for the first time. So figure because I was going to another bookshop in Connecticut, which was this giant place called the Book Barn. And it's just like literally book barns filled with tens of thousands of used books. It's it's that was worth a two hour drive. But you think of like Vinegar Syndrome and Arrow and all of these specialty companies and they load up their discs with special features, give it a nice new transfer and as horror fans, we're going to spend the money on those editions and what we call collector's editions. But uh-huh. this wasn't even collector's, right? I mean, it was right. like your run of the mill. Here is a new movie and we're going to put a lot of care into the packaging and what you get for it. Because mm-hmm. at this time, you know, they have no idea that it's going to kick off a franchise with a million collector's items, mm-hmm. you know, for right. the rest of the time. How big is that? reverse bear trap it's smaller than my head i think they have to make it because some idiot would get stuck (laughs) in it and sue right yeah probably me and actually (laughs) had really good customer service from this company which is why i shouted them out by name because the first one i received was broken Mm -hmm. and they sent me a new one so oh that's very cool yeah yeah is it small enough where if you had like a newborn they could wear it (laughs) Yeah, you could probably pop this on the old newborn noggin there. Okay, We should try it. Anybody know any babies? If we have any listeners that want to volunteer their baby to wear, yeah. forget Stop about sitting thing. on Santa's lap, like wearing the saw reverse bear trap. Oh my that God. That would be amazing. Yes. All right. I need to convince one of my friends with children that this is a good photo opportunity. Or just convince another friend to have a baby. Just like, go just ahead. Just, just, you know squat out a baby you know just and for fun one just time. for funsies and like after after they take the picture like do what you want with a kid like right that's not my business no yeah no we're no judgment here so Goodness. oh my god i can't believe they let me procreate anyway we got weird early we um, super weird super early so yeah we can talk a little bit about what else was going on in the genre at the time and why audience was, were ready for something like Saw. Mike, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I always love looking at these movies in the context of like where they're at at the time. And like thinking back to like the late 90s to the early 2000s, it feels like a time of like hyper masculinity. Like I think of like what was on television at the time and you're starting to get like the rise of the male anti-hero like the sopranos had been on since 99 ushering in what like folks like alan seppenwall have called like the golden age of television where you have like tony soprano you have uh michael chiklis playing vic Mackey in the shield so we're starting to see these portrayals of these kind of tortured male anti-heroes that do bad things for sometimes maybe good reasons or what they think are are, uh, moral reasons. There was also, like, pro wrestling had passed its peak, but it was still very popular. It was very bloody, and it was, like, not your 
80s Hulkamania. It was much more raw. It was much more violent. It was a lot bloodier. You have talk shows like Jerry Springer that are in its peak at its time. I think of like the music that was out. It was the new metal peak of new metal. Um, Have either of you watched like the documentaries on like Woodstock 99? Yeah. Yeah. I watched them both. Yeah. Mm hmm. I listened to a podcast about the documentaries. <laughs> so Excellent. no, I didn't watch them. Yeah. But yeah, crazy. And I remember hearing about it at the time. I mean, not as yeah. much as those documentaries revealed. Yeah. Just like a lot of white men in particular, very angry and not sure what they were angry about mm-hmm. heading into the turn of the millennium. And then you get into, my wife just sent me a photo of, I don't know what this is. Oh, this is my wife's best friend's mom hanging out with uh, Liam Gallagher at some music festival. So she's this 80-year-old <laughs> mom. So that is absolutely <laughs> adorable. Super random. Like speaking of uh, late nineties, early two thousands right. yeah, music. Oasis. You know what do you know? Who is angrier than the Gallagher brothers? Yeah, you know, nobody. You know. But then, so you get into this, and then the 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 millennium turns, and there's tremendous like political, economic, and social upheaval, starting with like the two thousand election. Like I remember being in Times Square in November of 2004, like almost getting arrested protesting the 2000 election. Like we weren't in Times Square for that reason to start. We just stumbled upon it and stuck around. We were there to see a bunch of punk bands that night, but feeling like, Hey, this election was taken from us. Like there's something that is not right about this. Uh, And then you have nine 11 a year later. And this idea that there, you have this, I don't know who to trust anymore. There is danger around every corner. I feel like I'm being lied to by my government, which is, I think it's a feeling that still carries over to this day. Like the nineties felt like a time of a lot of prosperity, a lot of good feelings. And now that it had gone up, that had just gone up in flames, basically the economic turmoil, like we're going through a recession while fighting another unpopular war in Iraq, where I don't think any of us could figure out, like, why are we in Iraq? This does not make any sense whatsoever. We knew we were being lied to in real time about weapons of mass destruction. Like, mm-hmm. we knew, like, this this is not right. So there's this tremendous amount of anger that's going on. Kind of mirrors, like, what's going on in the 70s with Watergate. Yeah. And the Vietnam War. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, it should also mention the photos that came out, you know, relating to torture uh, mm-hmm. from Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo Bay, um, how prisoners were being treated. And so the idea of torture and it became a hot button issue. Yeah. And I think that um, mm-hmm. is some of what was being responded to, I think, more by like Eli Roth with yeah. Hostel than with the first saw at least. Mm-hmm. So um, that's something I think worth mentioning as well. Yeah. Tell me if I'm wrong in how I'm remembering this. Cause maybe I am, I know with the Vietnam war, it was the first war that was really broadcast into living rooms. 
Sure. Where we were seeing the atrocities in real time. And a number of veterans, when they came home, they weren't treated with the same adulation and respect that our veterans from, say, World War II were, the great, what we would call the greatest generation. That's what they yeah. came to be known as. And there were twin reasons for this. It was, number one, on the right, persons were upset because we lost that war. Like, how dare you lose? And on the left, we were telling soldiers they were like baby killers. Yeah. How dare you participate? You know, even though most of them were drafted, you know, and didn't really have a choice. And it felt like with Abu Ghraib and what we were seeing coming home in the early 2000s, and maybe this was more of a mixed response than I'm remembering, but it almost felt like there was like, well, they're getting what they deserve. Like that Mm. we were not able to see the humanity in persons that were like Muslim. Like it was a time of tremendous fear and disrespect towards that community. And we felt like, well, these people don't have rights based on what they have done to us. Not considering that like we're the ones invading them. That's where a lot of the discussion and then I guess debate at the time was coming from was, you know, the, the morality, you know, where, where do you draw the line I, I, for a lot of people? I don't know. I was, uh, I was not as politically engaged at the time. I'll be honest mm-hmm. as I am now. So I wasn't remembering these things in full time. Mm-hmm. I was in, in real time. I was sort yeah. of focusing on my own stuff. But, it was probably the start of getting politi- politically engaged for me. It was definitely me too. Yeah. Me too. It was it, w- it was it was within it was around the two thousand four election for me. Yeah. yeah. So all this is going on, and we also and you know the seventies when this is going on, it mirrors another super creative period in mm-hmm. American cinema and art, and I could you could say you see that, and I don't know if it's quite as like going to be as fondly remembered but there are definitely new movements in cinema mm-hmm. in particular horror cinema at this time but also the teen slasher boom had fizzled out like what we had seen with scream by 2000 2001 i think horror audiences were ready to be done with it um the kind of yeah. kevin williamson like that kind of like banter that you would get that uh, knowledge beyond their years teen horror we were kind of fed up with it by then, right? Like it had kind of moved past its peak. I feel like yeah. that one fizzled out really quick too. Mm-hmm. It felt like it burned really bright with Scream and Scream 2. And then as soon as everyone tried to imitate Scream, including <laughs> Scream 3, uh, people were just like, ugh. <laughs> it just didn't take long. I mean, a lot of these movies are looked at now. You know, I'm thinking about um, House of Wax. I'm thinking about... Um, uh, Valentine, things like that. They're kind of fondly remembered now by a lot of people, but at the time they were just like, they're scream ripoffs and they're terrible. I know what you did last summer can go, you know, jump in the lake or whatever, whatever, you know, that, <laughs> that I don't, yeah. it's just, it, it, no one was, that's what I remember anyway. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. The slashers of the two thousands, Try, started to try to match the nastiness of 
what else was happening in the 2000s with new French extremity torture porn and Japanese gore wave. And so that gave us ha- mm. slasher franchises like Hatchet and Wrong Turn. Final Destination, which is a very glossy franchise, but still like quite nasty when you think about it. Yeah. So yeah, the, the slashers that were coming out around this time were trying to walk this fine line of we don't want to be scream, but we also are doing this slasher thing. And it worked better for some than others. Sure. Um, I think for Saw in particular, it, these things are less of an impact, but it goes on and especially the sequels, they're all responding to this in the world. You know, Saw was written by two Australian dudes in college. They started drafting the script in 2001. So there's like maybe a zeitgeist thing in the world, but they weren't as impacted by the things that we discussed until Mm -hmm. the later sequels. Um, And I do write about this in my book. So I love that we're talking about it. Excellent. Do you, would you say Ariel that if like Juan and one L weren't necessarily impacted by these like politically shifting political and, and social movements that maybe audiences were more ready for and willing to embrace this kind of horror, this kind of genre picture? It's a really good question. I don't know. Um, the thing that I think is really special about Saw, like we mentioned earlier, like this movie's not torture porn, like torture porn didn't right. exist yet. And I think this movie has more like a wider appeal because it's got the police procedural things. So mm-hmm. you can get your people who liked seven and um, the silence of the lambs and other cop procedural shows that were super popular at the time. And you can get, you know, the nasty horror fans like me who want to come see the gnarly stuff. So I, I think like, maybe even if they had been impacted by these cultural forces more so if they had still made a movie like this, I think it would still have the, the appeal that it does. But mm-hmm. I'm also like, I'm, I love this movie way too much to like think about it, not being well received. You know what I mean? Sure. Like my brain can't compute it. Yeah. I do think it did hit at just the right time. And in terms of what was going on with yes. horror, you have like, a year before this platinum dunes releases the Texas chainsaw massacre remake, which is yep. very well received makes a lot of money and is like a, I don't want to say it's a nastier version of the original cause it's not, but it's a, a much more vis violent, explicitly yep. violent version of the original you have in North America, more hardcore horror movies getting mainstream releases you get eli roth with cabin fever yep which was one of the most fun nights i've ever had at a movie theater like it was just a a, a blast to watch that in a crowded oh you know, i would have loved to do that. oh my goodness it was so much fun you have the house of a thousand corpses which had a very troubled history getting to the big screen but people were jacked for that movie and yep. signal like between rob zombie and and eli roth um signal like had heralded like the this new direction in horror 
And now with like DVD and becoming more and more common, it was a lot easier to see what was going on overseas with mm-hmm. horror movies as well. And not that all of these movies are explicitly violent or graphic, but that they're pointing in a different direction than what we had been getting here. So with Japan, you have Ringu and Juon. Uh, mm-hmm. which were both remade for American audiences. In fact, the number one movie that's out the week that Saw releases is The Grudge, which is the American remake of Juan, starring Sarah Michelle Gellar. I think it was like its second week of release, and it did just over $20 million. You have Ring, The Ring, which was remade here by Gore Verbinski, which was a super popular movie. But you also have like the you do have like these extreme offerings from Takashi Miyake with uh, Audition and Itchy the Killer. Like I can't rewatch Audition. It's like the one no. horror movie that I cannot can't do it. it it's better on a second watch. Is it? Oh, really? Well, well, I think it's better because you yeah. know where it's going, and the mm-hmm. front part isn't so boring. I, I kind of knew where it was going. I knew I knew where it was. I had watched that 100 horror movie moments on uh, on whatever that was, A&D or whatever. And so I had seen that a bunch of times. So the audition part, they give away. They spoil okay. everything on that on wow, that thing. So I so I knew it was going to yeah. her doing what she does at the end so i i was kind of ready for it i knew that it was a horror movie and i knew that it was gonna shift i wasn't expecting and i think with the end of audition it is like the the what keeps me away from like what we call what what i feel is torture porn the feeling of helplessness and we'll talk a lot more about that when we talk about the later entries of saw what to me torture porn is not that it's necessarily more graphic, but there's a feeling of inevitability that comes with it, that there's no chance for escape. And that's what fucks things. Up. And maybe that's why I like saw so much that there is at least a chance mm-hmm. of escaping from some of these traps. You might have to saw off your foot, but you can still get away. Um, Battle Royale is out in 2000 Mm. as well. And I remember getting a DVD-R rip of that movie from uh, a dude who owned like a mom and pop video store that had a great horror section and him being like, if you lose this, I'll have to kill you. Um, But we're seeing these great overseas movies. Mm. Uh, Chan Wook Park's Old Boy coming out of South Korea. These very violent movies that we're just not getting I love here. old boy old oh, oh. i'm so excited for it to get another theatrical run Holy same i'm so excited same i'm gonna have to pick up my tickets for that this week um and overseas in france like the new french extremity is underway and alexandra aja releases high tension in 03 and he said like high tension is definitely like a direct repudiation of what he was seeing in the nineties, like these lighter horror movies. He wanted to kind of rebel against that. And that's what high tension is all about. So that's where horror is at. That Mm -hmm. kind of sets the stage for saw and why audiences were so ready for it. And maybe why we're still talking about this series ahead of its 10th movie. (laughs) Yeah. This, this September. Yeah. It really hit at the perfect time. Yeah. 
Well, and you see, even in um, you know superhero and big old budget movies, on their way. I mean, you've got James Bond resetting to a grittier reality mm-hmm. within a year of Saw doing Casino Royale, um, and then you have Batman rebooting. I mean, just to, before this was Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movies, which are big and you know sort of classical sort of style of. Uh, of superhero movie. And then that changes with Batman begins to sort of the, could this happen in some heightened reality, you know, I mean, but it's more grounded than some of the other stuff. So there's a lot of that. I, I tend to wonder if saw had an effect mm-hmm. on that movement as well. So, so let's talk about the cast and their acting a little bit. So starting with Carrie Elwes. He was sent the short film on DVD and he was immediately interested in playing Dr. Lawrence Gordon. And to prepare for his role, he met with a doctor at UCLA's Department of Neurosurgery, which I think is a real commitment to what they expected to not be, you know, like a like a home release DVD. Um there yeah, is they were some... like, you can't expense that, man. Like we don't have right. the money. <laughs> right. There, there is some controversy. It seems to have worked itself out by now, but in 2005, he filed a lawsuit against his management and the producers of Saw, allegedly for a breach of contract and unjust enrichment. Basically, he said he was promised to receive some money that he did not receive. It, it was later settled out of court, and they're all hugging each other in the documentary, mm-hmm. so I think they're okay. Yeah. And one of those Hollywood financing. Oh, yeah. Like this movie made like 58 million in theaters and 100 million worldwide and 70 million in home video. It cost a million bucks to make. But yeah, somehow we're losing money. I don't know how that works, but yeah, it's the way it goes. Yeah. Somebody check those books. Look more closely. So what do you think of Carrie Elvis's performance? Sometimes he acts like he's in a different movie, right? Yeah. Um, So my understanding is that they had at most two takes for everything. That because of like the budget constraint, like you said, it was shot over 18 days. They weren't necessarily going to get a lot of cracks at bat in order to get it right. And to me two takes is kind of a warm up. It's like your sound check. You're not going to knock it out of the park. And especially, I think he's fine. I think he's mostly really good until you get to the last act. When you have to get Carrie L's to really emote, like I think of like him yelling, fuck this shit. Right. And he's doing yeah. it in his best new metal voice. Like he is, you know, down with a sickness, basically. <laughs> all right. You know, um, he's definitely like hitting a deeper baritone. And what's the most jarring is like when he answers the phone and starts screaming at Zep. No, bastard. I'll fucking kill you, bastard. Then it's what? Oh, honey. It's like so jarring. Honey? And it's just like, it's kind of funny. It like, is. I think watching this like in a theater today audiences would it kind of like when i see the shining with a big screen crowd 
people laugh at Jack Nicholson throughout the movie because it's a very comical performance. Yeah. What do you think? Well, um, I agree with what you said. They had Carrie Elwes for even less time. I think they had him for like six days. Wow. So they were really constrained. And it's true, like the whole movie... Um, they don't have enough footage. They don't have enough takes. Mm-hmm. They had to cut some scenes. Like they just don't have enough. So the takes that they do have aren't, you know, necessarily what everybody would want because of time and budget. But also there are times where you'll you'll see scenes where um Lee Winnell and Carrie Elwes are in the bathroom. And they're kind of one at a time talking to each other. And it feels like they're in different movies. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of true because Lee Wanell shot some of his lines after they had to let Carrie Elwes go. So like uh, Dr. Gordon's over here saying something. And then Adam has a really weird response to it. Mm-hmm. And you're like, whoa, that felt jarring and different. It's because they weren't really acting yeah. against each other that much. I wonder too, Lee- like as an actor, Lee Wanell's a great writer. Like, <laughs> Thought he has that to fall back on. That like, Elwes doesn't have like the best scene partner to play against as well, and it's almost like he's not necessarily raising Wanell's performance up so much as he's kind of going down to his level as well. To get you know what I mean by that? Like I think it's kind of like you're meeting. Yes meeting him where he's at rather than like kind of boosting him up. Yes. Yeah. And it's a shame because I know Lee Winnell really wanted to act and he, he's done a couple other parts, you know, he he's plays one better. Yeah. He, it's it's like Quentin Tarantino wanted to be an actor too. And yeah. you know, it, you know, so I go with your strengths Let's guys. Play to our yeah. strengths. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's, you know what? He's fine as as like a in a comedic role, right? Like he's, I think he's like one of the better parts of Insidious. I think him, yeah, like he's really fun there. I really like him in Cooties, which is another movie. Oh, that's he right, wrote, I forgot like the about kid that zombie mm-hmm. movie. Yeah, yeah. I haven't and seen look, that. That's a good it's, one. It's oh, fun. you would really like it. It's yeah. basically little kids eat tainted chicken nuggets and become zombies at an elementary school, and I you love have. That. Yeah, it's so much fun. You get a bunch of like little kids that get murdered. Um, again, which we quote, love on this show, which we do. I mean, we support that in cinematic <laughs> form, fiction, fiction, in fiction. Yeah, um, like the finale takes place at one of those big, like bouncy castle, like romper room places. It's oh, you should seek out cooties today. It's a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, okay. it definitely. I, I, I concur. Yeah. Let's put okay. it that way. I think did he direct that? Was that his directing debut? I don't think I so. I know that he I, wrote it. Yeah, I Maybe thought up, upgrade was I, I thought debut. upgrade was his debut. Yeah. Yeah. So I also thought it was upgrade. Yeah. Lee Wall, he's doing fine. Like he's yeah, yeah. he's yeah. Like, fine. I, he gets a little oh sorry, Brian. No, I was gonna say I, I I've really liked both of his directorial movies, like a lot. So I'm 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 thinking he's gonna be yeah. okay. <laughs> He gets a little teary eyed in the documentary Game Changer, where he's talking about how like his experience making Saw was so good that Mm -hmm. like they peaked really early and it's unrealistic to ever think it'll be that good again. Like the way he and James Wan talk about Saw 
makes me love it so much more. Sure. Mm, Especially yeah. now, because they look back and they're like, oh my God, we were kids. What were we doing? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I just think it's really sweet. And I wasn't ready for him to tear up. And I was like, yeah. wait a minute, I'm not emotionally ready for this. And as fans, that's kind of what we want from the, and I think it's great that like Juan and Juanel have stuck working in genre films as well. Like yeah. they keep working even when like James Wan does things like the Aquaman movies mm-hmm. and the fast and the furious movie, he keeps coming back to horror and he, fe- they mm-hmm. feel like ours. Like they feel like, like they belong to us in some way. And like, oh, James Wan definitely yeah. belongs to me. He might yeah. not know it. But... He might not know. So <laughs> yeah, I saw someone comment that James Wan just comes along into horror, just strolls his way in and just tells the rest of them how to do it for a while. Mm-hmm. That's what I said that. Was that you? Okay. Because you Probably were so right. I, if it, yeah. you were so, I thought you were so right because, I mean, look at Saw, look at Conjuring, look at Malignant. And everyone's just kind of like, okay, let's go there for a while. Mm-hmm. And I'm really happy with where we are right now with this goofy sort of world yes, that we're in, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so anyway. It's it's possible someone else said that as well. I, okay. I, I am not the only person yeah. to ever have that thought. But I have said yeah. that and I love it and I agree yeah. with it. And I will follow James Wan off the mm-hmm. edges of the mm-hmm. earth. Yeah. If he's listening, write me back. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. Or am I? We'll never yeah. know samples of his hair somewhere it's not weird it's not no. weird it's not weird when you say it no no so um let's talk about jigsaw himself mr tobin bell and side note amber t who writes for ghouls magazine and fangoria she gave saw fans the name tobin bells like b-e-l-l-e like so I've just, I've adopted that. I am a Tobin Bell. I'm going to skip off into the sunset with all my other Tobin Bells. But anyway, the actual Tobin Bell said to Bloody Disgusting, I did Saw because I thought it was a fascinating location for a film to be made. These guys locked in a room to me was fresh. I did not anticipate the ending when I read the script. So I was quite caught by surprise. And it was clear to me that if the filmmakers shot the scene well, the audience would be caught by surprise as well. The film was worth doing for that moment alone. He also wanted an opportunity to work with Danny Glover, which he had never gotten to do. And James Wan sought him out primarily because of his voice, because Jigsaw is a really prominent character in the film, but really only his voices, Mm -hmm. like his physical body is a character for like three seconds in the film. Yeah. So what do you guys think of Tobin Bell? I was amazed by how much work Tobin Bell had done before this. I mean, it just all sorts, because um, doing movies for life, we cover all sorts of things. So when we covered Goodfellas, I was like, oh my gosh, Jigsaw is Henry Hill's uh, parole officer, mm-hmm. you know, and we we just, both of us rewatched this. She watched it. Michelle watched it for the first time. I watched the Sopranos again and he plays, he has a small, he's in, he's, he's like the head of a military school, the core, the core, the core, the core, the core. core. Yeah. And so, um, he just pops up all over the place for an episode. 
Yeah, that's right. Seinfeld, I guess he's in Tootsie. He's in all kinds of stuff. And so it's just, um, he pops up all over the place. But this is, you know, the first time I think people really started recognizing him was in this franchise. And so, um, hey, just shows that if you keep going eventually, you know, something's going to work out for you, right? Um, And he's great. I mean, his voice, you know, that he's cast for his voice. I mean, I was joking about doing my jigsaw voice, but I mean, I want to play a game. Um, but it's just, uh, Nailed it. Oh, sure. <laughs> uh, he's just so much fun to, to tap into that. And his voice is such a key element and, um, it's really creepy and it's, I mean, who doesn't go around doing that kind of thing now? I want to play a game for years. You have, you know, that kind of thing, you know, I think can come up a lot, you know, for among fans, you just kind of, break each other's I'm watching Sopranos break each other's balls with that kind of thing. Um, so um, I don't know. I love, I love uh, Tobin Bell in this. I love him in everything I see him in, frankly. It's, a, it's kind of amazing that he's like 60 years old when this comes out. Yeah. And like Brian had just said, he's like a, that guy, he's someone you would say like, Oh, I recognize him. Like, and he had done a lot of TV work where he would appear mm-hmm. in like one episode of like charmed or law and order or something like that. He would just be one of those kind of background players. And I think his like main starring role, he plays Ted Kaczynski in a made for TV movie about the Unabomber. So now I have to seek that movie out and kind of watch it because I'm fascinated. I also just listened to uh, American scandal. They did like a five part series on, Ted Kaczynski and the Unabomber. So now that's another rabbit hole that I want to go down. And I think I'll have to interest coincide. But I wonder if he plays Ted Kaczynski the way he plays Jigsaw. Like if you watch that, tell me if it just seems like Jigsaw is the Unabomber. I think it's a lot different energy. Kaczynski was a lot more of I'm the smartest guy in the room and ranting, like ranting at cloud type Mm -hmm. of person. Jigsaw too. I think there's a lot quieter energy to Jigsaw. That's true. Um, But I'll I'll report back. I definitely will report back. It's amazing that at 60 years old, this is really his big break. And this is what we've talked for years about wanting Robert Englund to play Freddy one more time and him saying that he's too. And I think it helps it like with Jigsaw, like Bell, even though he's like, very physically fit like when you see him yeah he looks his age but he looks like a he looks like he has great grandpa strength if that makes sense do you know what i mean like he could but he plays him as very frail and tired and sickly and that's going to carry over from what i understand in the other because he is he's dying in these Mm -hmm. movies but to me it's he is these movies and i don't want to get into any spoilers so we'll save it but i'm wondering if they knew what they had if they would have made some of the choices they end up making in the sub i I think at a certain point they might have gone we made a horrible mistake uh in terms of what they decide to do but he's going to be 81 years old when saw 10 comes out and what everyone is excited for is it's the return of jigsaw like people are oh, saying yeah. like this is and he still looks great too. Oh so, yeah. But I for the limited amount of time he's on screen, 
he's fantastic. Mm -hmm. The vocals make it, but also the dedication. Like when they talked about, we'll make a dummy to lie on the floor of this bathroom. So you don't have to be there motionless. And Tobin Bell going, no, I don't want to do it. That's not authentic. Like I will lie here completely motionless throughout the filming of this. Like that is some dedication. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We will get into it in future sequels. Um, But I think that's a good observation, Mike, about do they know what they had? Um, So I also want to talk about Shawnee Smith, who plays Amanda, who is, you know, we see some other traps in the movie, but really other than Dr. Gordon and Adam who are trapped in the bathroom, the trap that we spend the most time with is Amanda in the reverse bear trap trap. And Shawnee Smith, um, she says she's not a horror fan. You know, she says she's like, it scares her, but that's like what makes her good in horror roles. Um, James Wan sought her out because he had a crush on her and he just kind of threw her name out one day and was like, well, what if we could get Shawnee Smith? And then when she said yes, he was like, what, really? We really got her? Um, she agreed to it after she watched the short. And uh, I think it is really important to point out when you see her on screen and saw she is very, very sick in real life. Mm-hmm. She has the flu. She has a 102 degree fever and she still did those scenes, which were very physical and she had to scream a lot and she had to emote a lot. And so I think she probably just took that she was feeling like crap and put it into the scene. But I'm like, my God, Hmm. that is dedication. So are you channeling your inner Shawnee Smith as we record? Yes. This episode, are you cosplaying as Amanda? I am, which is why i have the reverse bear trap yes excellent <laughs> yes listeners i have covid so this is i'm just pulling a shawnee smith today and you are here and dedicated and just killing it had to Absolutely do it you know it. that's what shawnee smith did yeah yeah she's um for the little that she's in it like i think she mm-hmm. might give the overall like strongest performance for yeah. the limited, maybe it's because she's not in it. She she's not in it enough to suffer from having like not enough takes to do a lot of work. Like the mm-hmm. sample size is very small, but I think she's great here. And I think it's fascinating that she doesn't love horror movies because she's mm-hmm. also the co lead of Chuck Russell's The Blob, The Blob, yep. yeah, nineteen eighty, which she made mm-hmm. when she was nineteen years old. Which, which I is, think is why James Wan had a crush on her. Oh, how could you not? She's so yeah. good in that, and she's so. <laughs> She's just so cute. I mean, it's I can't cannot blame James Wan. And by the way, what a power move, by right. the way, to be like, it's like I, I have a crush on this actress. I'm going to cast her. And not that he <laughs> there's any hint that he did anything untoward or anything whatsoever. But I kind of love that. I kind of. Yeah. He was just like, I don't know. What if we got her? And then he couldn't believe she said yes. Mm-hmm. And so then he it's like. When you get good news you weren't expecting, you're like, what do I do? Uh... She did a hundred episodes of this show, Anger Management, which is the spinoff of the Adam Sandler, Jack Nicholson movie. And it's what like Charlie Sheen did after he quit to an, and he got something like a hundred million dollars to do. He got like an unseemly amount of money 
to do this like comedy for TBS. And I wonder what do you think was like filthier, the bathroom and saw or the inside of like Charlie Sheen's trailer and dressing room? Like what would be <laughs> a less sterile environment? Is it possible they're the same place? Could be. <laughs> oh, would you like some background on the on the bathroom? Yes. Yes. So they do talk about this a little bit in the documentary. Um, but they, in talking with his production designer, James Wan was like, what is this bathroom? We don't want it just to be a regular bathroom. Like, what's the story here? And they never go into it in the movie because they don't need to, and the characters wouldn't. But apparently, in their mind, it was they were in a meat packing facility, and this is the bathroom that the workers use to like wash off before they go home, which is why there's a bathtub and like a lot of space in this bathroom. So that really grosses me out mm-hmm. to think about like meat germs mm. everywhere. I like that detail though. I I do like that part of it because there are no there's only one toilet. Yeah. It's not even really a bathroom. It's just like a giant it's like a studio apartment. That's really It's huge close. in there. Yeah. And there's like a random bathtub with no shower head mm-hmm. and one toilet and oh yeah, I guess if you're all like also thinking about washing off mm-hmm. in front of your coworkers, but I guess different jobs have different expectations. Yeah. <laughs> We mentioned Lee Wan All as Adam. Yes. I kind of said, like, as an actor, thank God he can write. Uh-huh. What do you all think of his performance as Adam here? I think he's adequate for what he's asked to do. I, you know, I, it's a, like we said before, low budget movie, you kind of forgive some of that stuff. I, mm-hmm. or, you know, if it's, if it's done well enough. And so I, uh, I don't mind him in it. I kind of like his energy. Yeah. Even if his delivery isn't always perfect. So I mean, I love it. I can't not I recognize that it is like objectively not great acting, but mm-hmm. I love everything about this character. Mm-hmm. We learn so much about him and his life just through like the little time that we have with him. And you know, he's a photographer. He takes pictures of people for money and he lives in a, I went to bed in my shithole apartment and I woke up in an actual shithole. Um, like I just love, he really feels like an embodiment of the time. Like if new metal was a person, Mm -hmm. I think it would be Adam from saw. So I like, that's a good point. I wonder if some of those lines would be better received if he had more, persons to work off of because he only has Carrie Els as, as Dr. Gordon, who's really not giving him anything back. Like when he says those, like, this is the most fun I've, I've ever had without, with, uh, without lubricant, yeah. like he's not getting anything back. And if there were more characters to kind of play off of, and right. again, I, and I, as much as I love those lines, they do feel like they belong in a much different movie. Like, Right. Or a much different situation. Like, dude, you're battling against the clock here for your life and you're making jokes well, about peanut butter and hookers. Well, some people, you know, they respond to difficult situations true. through humor. So mm-hmm. no. true. That is true. <laughs> and his performance at the end, 
where he's like begging for his life mm -hmm. that always really affects me yeah because he starts the movie as a person who seemingly doesn't care whether he lives or dies but by the end of the movie really faced with that when they figure out what's going on and dr gordon is crawling away and he realized he's just gonna be stuck in this bathroom and he's screaming like I think he that performance is yeah. objectively good, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. I think especially because his screams continue as the credits roll, and that is really haunting. Uh he gives great scream, and then to have them continue like, okay, the movie is over, but his screams are still going really works in the film's favor too. Like that's a very chilling ending. What about our buddy cops? It's interesting. Like the movie is really about them. It's like as much about them as it is about Adam and Dr. Gordon, mm -hmm. but I don't think about them as much. Yeah. I mean, Ken Leung, he's in for a couple scenes. I think he's probably the, gives the other strong performance. And again, yeah. because he's only in it for a limited amount of time, he doesn't have the opportunity to have to like, I don't mess things up is too strong, but there's not enough of a body there. There's less opportunity. See, he makes the most with like the limited time that he has is kind of like the weary cop. Um, like Dina Meyer doesn't get enough to do. And I love Dina Meyer. Like I have such a crush on her. Like I would cast her based on my crush on her from starship troopers. That would have been like my crush casting. Cause she's so good in that movie. Uh, makes you forget about Denise Richards completely. I think I'd much rather have Dina Minards in, in the base of that. That's either here nor there. I was going <laughs> to say that's an interesting detour. Yeah, sorry, we'll have to <laughs> no, stop don't there. Apologize. Pause there. Insight. Uh, <laughs> um, Danny Glover. I really feel for him in this movie, man, because you can see what he's going for. Like you can see that Danny Glover is trying to channel Morgan Freeman in seven, mm. that older, mm -hmm. weary, seen it all cop. And it just comes off as really low energy. And you definitely can tell that he was hurt by only having like one or two takes to do everything. Cause he's not, I mean, we know Danny Glover from like predator two and the lethal weapon movies. Like he's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting that we're commenting that the, probably the weakest performances come from the most experienced film actors. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Shawnee Smith, uh, Ken Long, um, th those folks um, kind of were, I think, still in the midst of the oh, we got to get this fast. We got to get this in two takes. You got to get it down, or it's it's that's it. That's all you got. Mm -hmm. So, I think maybe they were just still in that space possibly. I don't, yeah. I don't know. I can't say that for sure. Um, because we've both, I mean, we've all seen, um, uh, Carrie Awais and Danny Glover give better performances than these. Not only that, but super charismatic. Yeah. Performances. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, some of it could be, you know, they can't get their mouth around the writing, yeah, maybe I don't know. Um, there, there's all kinds of factors that could be going into that. Um, so I, I'm, 
definitely don't want to ding either of them as actors. Yeah. I really like them both as yeah. actors. So and Glover is only on set for two days. Like yeah. They have him for even less time than they have Carrie Ulan. Am I, how am I, do I pronounce Carrie's last name? I, I thought it not. was Elway's. I thought yeah, it was Elway's. Okay. Yeah. So think yeah. of John Elway. I always mispronounce it. <laughs> Someone has been screaming at me for the past hour for <laughs> But Glover is only on set for like two days. That's all they have him for, which is surprising given how much he's actually in this movie. Like they, mm-hmm. yeah. those must have been long days to which I, there yeah. has to be footage of him somewhere saying i'm too old for this shit yeah there has to be some outtake if there's not what are we even doing here at this point i mean that's like for think of it's like these guys coming in and doing a roger corman movie after having worked with well glover with spielberg and rob reiner and with people like this you know come in a couple of guys who are making their first movie You know, yeah. they're, and you can tell that both Juan, in my opinion, both Juan and Winnell, I think, seem to be learning a lot on this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there's, there's still room for, they're, they're going to grow and they're going to polish quite a bit. Um, oh, yeah. In the years to come. So we, we've seen like James Wan is basically handed Patrick Wilson a career, which I yeah. don't forgive him for. Um, <laughs> Patrick Wilson is all the, charisma of tapioca pudding which are you I, kidding me i don't i'm not a patrick wilson guy he's in his daddy era and i'm here he's for a it good looking man don't get me wrong he's a good looking he's a fine performer but i don't know just doesn't doubt for but it's neither here nor there um the only other person i want to mention like michael emerson who hmm. he's and it's funny him and ken leung will both appear on lost in their you know, the one and one out being from Australia, uh, part of Lost being set in Australia. But a year or two before Lost, like is playing the heavy, he comes on and does this role as Zep. He would go on to be like the heavy in shows like Evil. Like I really like Michael Emerson. I think he's a ter- he's probably the best part of Lost from season yeah, two. I would agree onward. Yeah. Uh, and he's fine here. He's another one that like given the limited amount that he has to do and he does good creep like his eye in the little eye hole like great little moments so he is although i don't think you know what you're going to get from him like a couple years down the road and realize like how versatile and how good he is like he's perfectly mm-hmm. fine here is that yeah he um he has some fun line deliveries too like <laughs> There's this awkward moment when he's like loading his gun as the, you know, during the third act of the film. And he says, I'm going to kill your husband now, Mrs. Gordon. But when he says Gordon, his voice drops and mm-hmm. he does like a new metal growl. Yeah. And I don't know where that comes from. I think he had just been stabbed, right? He had just been stabbed in the leg. I, I think so. It's like kind of yeah. like fighting through the pain. Yeah, it is yeah. like a weird delivery. Yeah. And when he says it's the rules, I think about that every day, just the way he says it. It's the rule. There's a sadness to it. It's the rules. And there's a sadness to it. He doesn't necessarily, we'll we'll definitely, when we talk about the film proper, like how Jigsaw is picking out his victims and like what, how arbitrary it sometimes is. I'll save that for a little bit, but you wanted to talk about the editing. 
a little bit and how it all comes together and how yeah how did this come together how was this movie stitched together difficulty with difficulty so kevin gruter the editor who he stays involved in the franchise and he goes on to direct the sixth movie um he just didn't have enough to work with like they didn't have enough footage and he so he had to stitch together a movie and like make it long enough by like putting editing into the scenes to make them look more active and frenetic and just like taking things he wouldn't normally take and like inserting still shots Mm -hmm. so like it really is kind of a masterful edit um but it was a lot of work it, it, would that be like that frenetic editing, like the moments where we see the traps that are sprung? And I'm thinking of like the barbed wire scene and the um, covered in like a, a f- accelerant scene where it's very fr- uh, frantic. It's very high energy and it's kind of has that like rock video. Like you see the influence of like I think of the band Tool and the videos they created like that kind of editing style, it feels like the fingerprints are all over this. Is that what he's referring to? I would also wonder if some of the editing stuff, um, they mentioned Pi and Darren Aronofsky. Um, so something like Requiem for a Dream, you can see sort of some some of that frenetic energy mm-hmm. in that as well, <clears throat> as well as uh, um, like David Fincher with seven there's definitely a seven vibe to this movie this movie doesn't exist without seven right and there are a number of influences like this feels like seven up you know kind of like it's a <laughs> lighter version of it we are going to pick up our discussion now with the movie itself we've covered the background we covered our feelings on it and you know i want to talk a little bit about james one as a director and Ariel, you've mentioned this and Brian, you mentioned this and I think it's a big part of his appeal is I think Ari, you said it best before when you said James Wan comes in every half a dozen years or so drops a new horror movie. And that seems to be the direction that the genre tends to go in. We saw with saw after this movie comes out, we have like a solid, like a half a decade period where torture porn, whether or not it's fair to label it this, but more extreme horror became in vogue. After Paranormal Activity comes out, he does like Insidious is like his kind of like demo tape. Uh, it's another movie that was a million dollars and makes 40 million. But then he does The Conjuring, which mm-hmm. I think you pointed out is the highest grossing franchise in horror history with only seven movies like really almost just like just over half of what the halloween series has and then uh in 2020 he comes out with malignant which even though that movie wasn't a huge box office hit because really theaters weren't open at the time it was one of the most talked about movies when it came out over the past now we're seeing like in 2022 2023 a return to horror that takes a few chances that isn't afraid to be a little bit silly that isn't afraid to take these wild out of nowhere swings and you're getting these movies like barbarian megan cocaine bear that are 
you know, you can't spell horror without fun is what I always say, uh, which is why <laughs> I always say that. wasn't an English major because spelling <laughs> is not my strong suit. Well, and the only web or something like that, even to that. Oh, list, you know? I loved cobweb deserves a lot more love. It really. I've seen it at Fright Fest. I can't wait. Enjoy. Enjoy that with I'm a crowd. Um, and I will say that I think that the ending of that movie was heavily influenced by Barbarian. I think so that, too. Like, yeah. mm-hmm. It was either yeah. reshot or restructured, and I'll just leave it, leave it at that because it kind of comes out of nowhere. In a way, like James Wan reminds me of Wes Craven. And Brian, I see you wearing your directed by Wes Craven shirt. But the difference being that unlike Wes Craven, Wan has gone on to have like success outside of horror movies mm-hmm. that you know, along with Patty Jenkins' first Wonder Woman movie, he directed really the only DC project that people really enjoy. Like, people really love the Aquaman movie. And it's a fucking Aquaman movie. Like, if you would <laughs> have told me. It was a huge hit. I, I just oh, yeah. This history of uh, DC comics or something like that. And they said it's like the most successful DC movie, DC which, oh, wow. movie, which is. I did not realize. I right, pretty wild, and that's despite Patrick Wilson being in the movie. Like, so you have to overcome that (laughs) obstacle too. I I cannot stand for this Patrick Wilson maligning. Oh my god! Yeah, well, vanilla is a flavor of ice cream that we now enjoy every now and again. I've heard he's very lovely, and I probably shouldn't. And I have enjoyed him in some things, so. I don't know. There's just something about him. I think that I don't know. Maybe I saw the first thing I saw him in was a hard candy, and maybe I have this visceral. Yeah, that is yeah Uh, scary to watch. Right, but you know he's done the Aquaman movie. He's directed. Was it Fast Five? Like which Fast and Fast Seven? Okay. And I actually. Oh, sorry. Um. Well, I'm also a big Fast and Furious fan, as we know. Um. And I think it like really is worth pointing out how special that movie is that is the movie during which very sadly um paul walker passed away Mm -hmm. during filming and so james wan along with lots of others but james wan is the director had to figure out you know not only was he stepping into a franchise that wasn't his and trying to do a good job without making a mess now their star is tragically dead he wants to honor that person as a person and their family and not be callous and cold and he wants to make a good movie and he fucking nailed it like seven is one of the best ones and i'm not just saying that because james wan is my favorite um and like they did a really excellent job honoring paul walker's legacy in the movie itself so like if there's any question about if he can direct anything he ever wants to, like just watch Furious 7. What would you say the hallmarks of a James Wan movie are? Because I do think he has like an, auteur, an auteur style. Like you can tell a James Wan movie, not necessarily with Saw. I think there's a lot of learning on the fly with this one. Uh, yeah. But I think even with Dead Silence, a lot of the things I would associate with James Wan, you start to see in that movie. What I would you both say? I really like my second watch of it. 
I'm like, I was wrong about this movie. It's a fucking blast. It deserves it's so fun. all of the flowers. What are his characteristics? Like, what do you think makes his style so iconic? He is willing to be patient and hold a shot and let you. It's not quite in the way of like, oh, there's something in the background that I need to make out like Mike Flanagan will do. But it'll he'll hold a shot until something suddenly happens. And it's like he'll get a jump scare out of you by doing almost nothing. Mm-hmm. And he really likes to like have a character step in front of something and step away and, and something's behind them. Like he loves a secret sort of like switcheroo in the background mm-hmm. to surprise you with horror. And because, you know, I mean, we're all kind of used to like the open the refrigerator door and then close it and then someone's behind it. But it's not quite like that. It's a little bit different from that. So it still can catch me off guard. Mm-hmm. Those are a couple of the things I think. of. Yeah. My dirty little secret is I don't really like jump scares. I, that it's, especially if they're cheap. Okay. So if it turns out to be the cat or, or something like that, that just kind of makes me crazy. Mm-hmm. However, James Wan is one of the exceptions for me. I think, you know, there's when Spielberg, the shark coming out, that's a great jump scare, you know? <laughs> the, and I think the way he crafts them is on that level. Um, I, I find that they really work for me when he does them and he doesn't overuse them. And they're almost always an actual horror element. They're not a cheat. They're not some sort of stupid, cheap trick. There's a payoff. Yeah. 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 I think of the Lily Taylor in the conjuring going down the stairs, playing the clap game and you see the hands appear out of the darkness. Yes. Mm-hmm. To your point, Ariel, like he's very patient with his shots. And I don't know anyone that uses like negative space or bl- inky blackness better yeah. than James Wan. I'm thinking of like, I think it might be the second. The, it's the first Conjuring movie when the two girls are in their bedroom and they think something's in there with them. Yes. And you're just like focusing on this like empty space in the room and you know something is there. And it holds far longer than it should. And he never cheats his audience. Yeah. Like he doesn't rely, like you said, Brian, on that trickery. Like it's not the cat. Um, I am kind of with you in that like jump scares, although they can be effective, they tend to be overused and a bit of a cheat. Um, The exception, I think, being like in 2022's Scream where you had the character of Wes and the soaring music and the crescendo building him going through his kitchen and like opening the cabinet and the music would build. And there's that was done knowing the cliches though. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's it's twisting around and playing with the cliches and that actually makes it, that works for me too. I think that's, that's a different use of it, you know? And I think uh, James Wan, I would, you know, I keep on, I've brought the hip, this person up before uh, in the last episode, but it seems like he kind of uh, understands jump scares and um, the use of darkness, the way that Val Luton movies do Mm -hmm. and did. Uh, I would also think like um, Robert Wise's the haunting where, where there's just 
the 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 scary thing is not usually shown, but when it is, it's sparse and it's effective and it's used for with purpose. Mm-hmm. And I think that is really um, he seems to have tapped into sort of the modern version of of what you know Val Luton movies and mm-hmm. uh, Robert Wise was doing with those. So. Yeah, to your point of like a director going back and looking at the classics and updating them, I think of what what Craven did with like his kind of retelling of the Virgin Springs when he oh, yeah, did like yeah. Last House on the Last Left, House. and all of a sudden you have a movie with Last House that although that wasn't a massive massive commercial success, it was a bit of a minor hit. And I think it had a very big influence on 70s horror going forward, which oh, was much grittier. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and also, um, re- and the thing, you know, Craven, I don't want to tangent on Craven too much. No, please Craven, do. That's the opportunity yeah. to. That's yeah. that's what I'm here to do. Yeah. Well, with Craven, I mean, I've uh, written more about Craven than I have about anything else, I think, is um, the... Uh, the use of, you know, literature and classical things, because he was not a horror fan before he set out to make last house on the left. He had seen exactly one horror movie. He'd seen night of the living dead and that's it. And so he was, um, seeing art films. He was seeing, you know, the sixties, um, you know, the stuff that was coming in from Godard and from Buñuel and, and you can see things, like that. I mean, he's not just a student of horror cinema, he's a student of cinema. And his his education came solely from, you know, sort of these art films because he mm-hmm. didn't see horror films, any films except for Disney movies maybe as a kid. So, yeah. um it's it's just uh it, so it's the taking of those things that are deep within the psyche of the viewers already, fairy tales. Um Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. You know the the uh, collective unconscious whatever of our storytelling past and putting it into film. And I think Juan yeah. has has some of that uh, in him as well. Uh, and I, I appreciate the way he's he is translating that into you know two thousands to yeah. today. You know, what do you think you could point to? where someone like Juan has had the success outside of the genre, but keeps returning to it, not only with his own movies, but also through like Atomic Monster, his production company, which I isn't merged with Blumhouse. Like I thought they were going to bring those two together to form kind of like a larger partnership. I, I feel I read like that. I read that, but I don't actually know. If it's gone through, Kim. Yeah. But he's someone that, even though he'll work outside the genre, keeps returning to it and seems to really enjoy mm-hmm. working in the genre. Why he was able to attain this mainstream success where with Craven, despite is despite not maybe loving the genre, at, even at first, but really having all of his success within the genre, why wasn't he able to attain that kind of breakout mainstream success? Well, I think it was partially, it was a different time, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? So I, he was typecast certainly. Um, And then of course the one movie he does 
make that is is allowed to make that is outside that is far outside the genre mm-hmm. i should say you know music of the heart is just kind of a bomb it just lands and no one and it's really i don't know i'm a defender of that movie i think it's really beautiful film as a music teacher it kind of kind of hits me Mm -hmm. um but um i think why wasn't he able to and the thing is it's interesting because in those early days after um we almost got Wes craven's first blood for example i mean Hmm. he was he was attached to write the script and I think he was working on it. He was like in pre-production and then um, it went in another direction, you know, when Stallone was brought on all those things. So it just became something different. Um, Then, you know, like we almost had, if, if Swamp Thing had been a success, we would, instead of Tim Burton's Batman, we would have had Wes Craven's Batman. Hmm. I mean, it's just sort of these these um, these things where his successes, because his successes were all horror, that's what he was placed in, and everything sure. sort of slightly, even slightly outside of that, just didn't do well. So yeah. he got, but in the end, he was like, "I have been able to tell the stories that I want to tell." You know, talk about the social sort of aspects that I want to talk about and get into the social political elements of things, you know, some like people under the stairs. I mean, you can't tell that story outside of horror genre. Right. Um, so I don't know the, he, he's, he eventually just kind of said, okay, uh, there, I, no. I've mostly not been messed with. I've mostly been able to do what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so why complain? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I just wanted to touch on that brief because I do yeah. find it such a a fascinating comparison because I think they yeah. have like very similar trajectories. And yeah. although well, Carpen- Carpenter never really got a chance to do much outside the genre either, yeah. because it was the same deal. Anything that he tried that was um, not entrenched in horror or science fiction mm-hmm. just kind of didn't do well. And so it's like, okay, you're gonna, you gotta do stay in your wheelhouse. I feel the difference there fairly or unfairly is that Carpenter had a lane and was like fairly happy to remain in it. And one thing is like with John Carpenter, you can tell well, he did want to make Carpenter. westerns, though. That's true, <laughs> you know? and he so, made kind of one with vampires, right? You're right. You're right. Yeah, that's. Um, but he was more happy to stay within the genre and just like did different like categories. Like he was a uh, happy to make B movies, but do them with like the panache of like an A list director. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I also yeah. felt like Carpenter's success, like the more money, we talked about this a bit on our John Carpenter retrospective, the more money you gave him, sometimes the less successful the pictures were. And that he like thrived with like, if you gave him, it seemed like six million was the cutoff point for yeah. better or for worse. Um, getting into... This movie and getting into James, although like the wan aesthetic might not be prevalent here in Saw, and this is very much like Juan and Winnell learning on the fly, this does have a very specific aesthetic to it 
one that I think not only influenced the other entries in this genre, like you can tell a Saw movie when you turn it on, especially the first four movies. Oh, yeah. And you could tell like this time period of horror. How would you describe this aesthetic? Like if you were to tell someone what this movie looks and feels like, like, well, how would you tell someone? Dirty, bleak, grimy, gritty, very sickly, green and mm. yellow lighting. Sickly is a great way. To, yeah. <clears throat> that um, sickly greens and yellows. And saw the first movie is more blue, but they become very green as the yeah. series goes on. Um, but all, so many movies throughout the 2000s horror movies that kind of fall into this subgenre that we're touching upon and sort of dancing around, they all have kind of a dirty griminess to them that is... Um, you know, it's such a stark contrast to what we saw in 90s slashers that were so glossy and pretty mm -hmm. and polished. And then it's like, no, we're in a meatpacking bathroom with hearts drawn in poop mm -hmm. and there's dust everywhere. And now there's blood mixed with everything. So all those nasty, nasty words is like free associating my favorite stuff. It feels hopeless. Yeah. It feels like every ounce of joy, every ounce of happiness, every ounce of like hope has been drained not only from the kind of bathroom where we spend, you know, really half or more of the film, but every nook and cranny of this city, which mm -hmm. is never named has been city. yeah it's just saw city like dark times and saw city yeah there's also that the speaking of the lighting as a lot of fluorescence you know it feels like it's yes. flickery and you know that that sense of being under fluorescent lights in work or at the mm -hmm. grocery store or something like that no. just kind of oppressive feeling somehow after a while it doesn't feel natural it feels unnatural mm -hmm. and like it's draining life out of you rather than giving it like oh. sunlight might and there's yeah. no windows you right. know right. and it's mm -hmm. just sort of like you're just stuck in there with whatever you're given yeah. it's like trapped in your cubicle yep <laughs> you're right i don't think there's any use of natural light in this movie and part of that is just you're shooting on film. You only have a limited uh, amount of access to your performers. Everything is shot really in one giant warehouse. Like they really, all the sets are built on in one location. But even when you, you move out of the bathroom main location, which is like that really harsh blue, all the fluorescent, really grating look to it. When you move to like the apartments of Saw, when you go to Adam's apartment, it looks like a nightclub's bathroom. Yep. It's covered in graffiti. It's dirty. There are holes in the wall. Like it, I, I look at it and I think of like specifically from my own youth, like Club Babyhead in Providence and the Rathskeller in Boston, like two infamous like clubs where you would go see punk and metal bands. Like it looks like you know, like the Ramones are going to come set up in Adam's apartment and rip out all of Rocket to Russia. Which would be amazing. Maybe they will. 
which would be awesome. <laughs> I can hope, yeah. Um, but like Adam lives in a shithole. Yep. Yeah. Right. And I think that informs his character as well. Very much so. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the the hotel that Doctor Gordon takes um, his coworker to. Mm-hmm. To cheat with her, maybe not cheat with her, doesn't cheat with her, who cares? Like, that's not a nice place either. And, like, the parking garage, when he's leaving, that's not a nice place either. The only nice places we see, really, are Dr. Gordon's home. Mm -hmm. And, um, like, the hospital seems to be a regular hospital. Yeah. Like, it's clean. It's clean, but it's not a a sterile environment. There's, like, nothing inviting... There's nothing, and I think that goes a long way. Like you notice, like Doctor Gordon never refers to John as John. It's always the patient, the patient. Yep. And even after he's corrected, he still continues to do it. Like it's an Im- impersonal setting. Uh, you cut to Danny Glover's, like Doctor, is it a Detective Tap? Right. Yes. He is. His apartment is one slight step above Adam's, but like in the short time he's been there, every crevice, every wall has been covered with these clippings. Like there's nothing that screams, this is a home. It just, it looks like a rat hole. And even the architecture, uh, like I said, like it's set in city, quote unquote, during indeterminate time period. And the aesthetic of the city seems to be thick slabs of concrete where your main industry is like managing abandoned warehouses. Like that is your job. Where are the homes? (laughs) Right. You know, Mm -hmm. it's just like warehouse after warehouse or like abandoned office buildings. Yeah. And it's, um, I think that's important to the tone of the movie. I think that goes a long way to establishing like the tone that they're going for. Like it's, it's kind of a happy accident because of the limited budget they have to shoot with. But I think also they're smart with it and it goes a yeah. long way to informing what you're going to see here. And who do we see here? Let's start at the top. Like what are our, our initial impressions when we meet Adam and Dr. Gordon? Like when we first meet them, I think one of the things this film does, it's really smart. It throws you directly into yeah. it. Like, you mm-hmm. know, as much as they do, there, you're, it's a mizzen scene. It's like you're just thrust right in. What are in, our initial impressions of these two? I mean, Adam's really grating right away. He's sort of like aggressive, whereas mm-hmm. Dr. Gordon is like, we need to work together. What do you know? What do I know? Can we put things together what we know? But also like Adam's reaction is sort of understandable. Like it's really scary and is really disoriented. And Dr. Gordon's kind of being kind of stuck up and sort mm-hmm. of like well I'm in charge of everything else in life I must be in charge of this situation and just sort of like trying to take control of things so I think it's pretty efficient the way they show us both like the characters strengths and weaknesses pretty quickly yeah yeah I'd agree <laughs> I don't know that mm-hmm. I have much more to add to that it's true it's it's uh it's just sort of instantly throws you in your and at first it's like, okay, something went down the drain. What, uh, what right. was that? You know, right off the bat. And, um, which just seems so unfair to me when I watch the movie. Yeah. It is unfair. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, 
I, you get the sense that like this is not the first time Doctor Gordon has woken up in a strange place, <laughs> chained to something. He's like, "Well, all right, another we got to figure it's another day at the office. <laughs> it's Saw City where we're these peanut sh- butter orgies. Yeah, it's just um, well, it's almost you- uh, it also kind of has the effect when you see okay uh, of. It almost has the urban legend effect going on. Yes. You know, like you woke up in the morning, uh, you have a note that says your kidney's been taken out. Mm-hmm. You know, that that kind of an idea, that sort of feeling, you know. It's like, oh, I woke up and all of a sudden I'm in this place and I'm chained to the wall. And, and what do we do? Figure your way out. You know, it's an escape room idea, which I think is, mm-hmm. is, uh, it sort of predates that craze, maybe inspired that craze. Who knows? I think it's probably a good chance it did. Um, and just figuring out based on the clues, okay, what do we have at our hands? What, you know, and, and I think the scenario is so beautifully just set in the moment, um, that it, it's intriguing instantly. So, yeah, and it's all of these dominoes that are lined up. Like everything has to kind of go off in a specific order. Like Jigsaw, who's lying in the middle of the floor, can't kind of like pop up his head and go like check under the seat. Like he has to. <laughs> there is a X marks the spot. <laughs> yeah, like who said that? <laughs> right. It will talk about Jigsaw, the patience that that mm-hmm. sort of thing takes as a villain too to like be there in the middle of this chess game that is playing out and not and having the patience to not influence at all because at any point he could just get up and say game over i have you both where i want you and then walk out but that's not his game that's not his motif yep. it is to kind of set these events into motion and then just let them play out and see where the cards are going to fall. Yeah. And he is a voyeur. He does enjoy watching this play out, yeah. too. I definitely want to talk about voyeurism and surveillance in a little bit. But before mm-hmm. we do that, I'm wondering, how do you both feel the structure of this movie works in terms of we spend some time, a good amount of time with Adam and Dr. Gordon getting started and then we start to get flashbacks to the recent past and the movie starts unfolding a little bit. How do you feel like that structure, those like flashbacks interspersed with moving things just a little bit ahead work for you? It works for me. Um, it's going to be really hard for me to say anything like, <laughs> no, I didn't like this. Mm-hmm. Just spoiler alert. Yeah, um, spoiler. This was the worst. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually hate this movie. No, um, I I think it's a really good way to tell. Like if, if they had told this story linearly, it would not have been as exciting, I think. Like. To wake up with Adam and Dr. Gordon and go, oh, what's happening? And then to slowly get pieces of it as they Mm -hmm. do, I think it makes it a more exciting story for the viewer. I'm not exactly sure 
that the flashback scenarios work for me the way they're mm-hmm. i don't know if it's the way they're shot or the, the there's something weird about the way they look to me uh, or feel to me or all of a sudden they're going wait a minute I remember that we had this happen. I had this happen to me yesterday. And then mm-hmm. I, I don't know something about that. It's a little on the clunky side for me, but I understand, but I don't yeah, know what I would true. do differently. You know what I mean? I, I think if it was intercut with the police kind of going forward, I can, I can see leaving the room for that, but le- showing them outside the room for some reason bothers me. Yeah. And, and it's just one of those things where I think have, being con- having them completely confined um, is something that I would maybe prefer, but I get why they told the story the way they did. I, I just wonder if there's another way to do it. Yeah. You know, that that's, that's just, I, I don't get me wrong. I really like the movie a lot, but that's just one of those things that, and and like I said, leaving the room to have the police procedural somehow works for me, but somehow showing those two characters outside the room doesn't as well. Yeah. Yeah. There are some oddities there. Like some of the, and like to your point, like, oh, I think I know who's doing this. And it's almost like Wayne's world where it's like, right. Yeah. And then five months before, it is where you get, what this movie is probably best known for is like, and even though like it's a very small part of this movie, like the traps are both the selling point of the first saw movie, but also like a really small part of it. And I was wondering how you felt like that footage was kind of incorporated into this and what you, I love seeing Amanda's whole thing plays out because she survives. And so I think it's cool that we get to see her whole ordeal. The other folks that we see in traps, the guy in the barbed wire Mm -hmm. and the guy who has to unlock a safe. Well, impossible fire. Yeah. Impossible task. Yeah. Um, I like that. We don't see as much of those because they are so simple and straightforward it's sort of like here's a tableau and that's really all you need to know about what happened because they didn't make it and you can very clearly understand why mm-hmm. whereas for amanda it's like well how the hell did she make it and then you see it yeah does jigsaw play fair with his traps <clears throat> no no yeah. I, I think of that one with a safe right yeah. and it's like well the combination is like somewhere in this room and you look around the room and every inch of every surface, the numbers are written on it and they're not written in a way where it's like, okay, here are a bunch of potential combinations. Just start making your way through them. But it's more like here are a bunch of random numbers in the wall and six of them are going to make the combination have at it. Right. There's no way you're going to succeed. Right. No, no, it's not fair at all. It's absolute bullshit. And, um, the reason why I believe his name is Paul is trapped in the barbed wire. Um, you know, I think we should acknowledge that this movie and some of the sequels have real problems addressing like mental illness, mental health problems, addiction. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure we'll have a few things to say about that, but you know, he puts a person in a trap for doing self harm and it's sort of like, Oh, jigsaw, you don't get it at all. Right. 
Yeah, that's one of the things that just came to mind while we were talking about that. Just like, do you do we think then that Jigsaw gave? Uh, I mean, it's still an extraordinarily difficult, almost impossible task, but not as impossible as some of the others to Amanda because he wanted to make her. He he like studied her or something to think that maybe he could acquire her to be part of his. I don't know, cult or whatever. I think that's a great question. And I think that that hinges on whether or not, like this was a standalone movie. Like it was not meant to be this like massive franchise. And I do think that the way they kind of like, when we go into like saw two and everything going forward, I think that the creative team does as good of a job as you possibly could do. Like making the puzzle pieces yeah. fit, yeah. but I I struggle with that because even though like she in some ways has like the quote unquote easiest task, well, it's a fair task at least. It's not it's not completely impossible, you know. It's horrifying and definitely could end tragically, but um, he lies to her though. Well, he says the key is in the stomach of your dead cellmate, but he's alive, and that is Mm -hmm. on purpose. Yeah. That's not a mistake. If Jigsaw Mm -hmm. wanted to kill that person, he would have. But Amanda's test wasn't, can you get the reverse bear trap off your head in 60 seconds? It was, are you willing to kill another person to survive? Sure. Yeah. 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 Pretty fucked. And I think of, like, you know, Zep doesn't deserve to be part of these games like he is the only we only see john kramer like very briefly in the hospital to the point where he's kind of a non-entity like that's what's so shocking about the end of the movie zepp is like the only person that deserves doesn't deserve to be he doesn't deserve to be part of this game he doesn't deserve to, to be poisoned um you could see why mrs gordon is part of the game like in john's twisted logic saying like, well, you don't appreciate all the good things that you have in your life. You seem ungrateful for them. So therefore you must be punished. But his, their daughter doesn't deserve any of the terror that she has to go through. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, as we discuss each movie in this franchise, I'm going to keep my analysis just to what we know Mm-hmm. at the time sure yeah and so in this movie all we know is that jigsaw is a sick fuck yeah like he's mad that he's dying which is understandable and he wants to see other people suffer he says he's like oh some people are so ungrateful to be alive but like he's really just taking it out on other people there's no there's no more motivation than that that we get from him here is Adam a player in the game or is Adam just like in uh, Amanda's case, she, there was the person she had to kill to escape. Like Adam doesn't have a role to play aside from like victim. Correct. He could saw his foot off. Okay. No reason he couldn't right. do the same thing that Dr. Gordon did. But yeah, I mean, doc, Dr. Gordon's supposed to kill Adam. Right. And I think that Jigsaw is setting Adam up to die because he knows, like, Detective Tap is using Adam to get to him, you know? 
So he's like, I'm going to kill this photographer mm. who is helping this cop who's trying to get to me. But, you know, technically, Jigsaw loves his technicallys. Mm-hmm. Adam mm-hmm. could saw his foot off at any time. And just make his way out of that room. Yep, which, you know, is a great plan. Yeah. What do we think of Jigsaw's motivation here? Like like you said, Ariel, like it is based on this idea of, you know, him being angry at his fate, like having this brain tumor and not knowing how long he has to live and therefore taking out like to me it's like coming out of a place of real rage and anger and he's directing that outwards at other persons saying like okay you don't know what i I appreciate my life and you you don't you don't know what you have therefore i want to punish you and yet Mm -hmm. you have like dr gordon can say well technically he's not a killer like technically everybody he doesn't do any of the killing himself which is i would love to see his his lawyer yeah kind of get him off on that it's very uh charles manson i guess in Mm -hmm. that sense there's that sort of uh, underlying inspiration i think Yes. Would you bring Jigsaw up on the Rico statuettes where he's basically <laughs> putting these? He's Tony Soprano. Yes. Never Rico. <laughs> um. Yeah, I think so. I don't believe Jigsaw's BS pretty much at any point. And I've actually written about this um, on Ghouls. It's very spoilerific for future movies, so don't read it if you haven't watched future movies. But. Um, how Jigsaw treats what he calls his work. I don't know if he even believes his own bullshit. It's mm-hmm. very much like a cult leader, like mm-hmm. saying one thing and then just like doing whatever they want on the side. Right. Yeah. That's one thing I was thinking about. And, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm going to try and keep it to this movie too, but you know, I don't know how many of the sequels I'll end up jumping in to talk about. So, um, but this idea of him as a cult leader, um, there was a Netflix special on, you know, how to, how to become a cult leader. Um, you know, it's sort of tongue in cheek and it, and, and Netflix what, really digging deep for content. Well, it's, it's actually, it's, it's a, it's a tongue in cheek way of telling these stories about the, what cult leaders do, you know, they're, they're that, how they follow similar playbooks. And he's totally following that playbook, you know, you know, gaining devotees, figuring out ways to get those devotees to continue his work Mm -hmm. after he's gone, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And so I just found that fascinating on this viewing. And uh, Mm -hmm. I want to watch the sequels again, you know, beyond, beyond two because that's really as far as i got so far um just to just kind of see how deeply it goes into that because i think that is one of the fascinating sort of aspects of the story and uh including i mean we don't really know you know what in, in this movie you know about any followers so much right but uh but it's, uh, I don't know. I, I just, that's something that, you know, it's just interesting to me personally anyway. So I have a compare. I'm going to save this comparison, I think for a later episode, but comparing Jigsaw to the Batman we see in Grant Morrison's run 
on the JLA comics from, I think like the late nineties, early two thousands. And that like Batman always has a plan and like in the tower of Babel storyline, essentially Batman's dossier on all the other JLA members is discovered. Like he's like, here's how I would take out Superman and Wonder Woman and the Flash and Green Lantern. Like if, if the shit ever went down, this is how I would have to take them out. And somebody gets their hands on it and uses it against the JLA. So when we talk about the later movies, I think I'll bring that comparison up, but I'll stick to what we know here. And I think like what I noted was like, what his rationale seems to be is he's choosing these, what I'm calling the contestants of his game because they don't appreciate their lives. They take it for granted. And Jigsaw saying by putting them through my game, they have a chance to come out the other end with a newfound appreciation for their life. It's not a guarantee. It's just an opportunity. And they're more likely, you know, despite their best efforts, because you could say that like Paul desperately wants to live. Like you can see in the, the, the brief moments we, and like, we don't know, like what's Paul's like suicide attempt, a cry for help. Was it a moment of weakness? Like what Paul needs is he needs counseling and medication and support and understanding. He doesn't need to be stripped to his boxers and then thrown in a eight by eight cage filled with like razor sharp wire. Um, Right. So, The victims, like they're chosen out of capriciousness, out of pettiness, out of hostility. He's putting others in harm's way to make them a part of the game. But what he he thinks he's doing, and I kind of made this note, this idea of redemption through suffering. Like in Jigsaw's mind, the only way to be truly redeemed is you have to suffer for it first. And it's a very Christian, it's a very specifically Catholic idea. Uh, that you see it started with like St. Paul in his writings of the Corinthians in that this idea that in order, because Christ the son suffered for all of mankind and this idea of like the, the getting crucified for his resurrection in order for man to be truly redeemed, they also need to suffer in God's eyes before that redemption can be earned. And that like suffering is an offshoot of Christ's death. It's to be embraced as a part of humanity. It's not something that should be avoided or feared. It's fact, like in order to only way you can achieve that redemption is to be, to suffer for it first. Um, Yeah. Things like self-flagellation and all those kinds of, I mean, uh, Luther, for example, rejected that. I mean, he he would, uh, when he was, before the Reformation started, he would flog himself. And then he, it's like, the whole idea was that, no, Christ suffered on our behalf. So we (laughs) we don't have to do the same kind of thing for redemption, you know, is, is I think what um, part of, so I, yeah, but I can see that being definitely, certainly a a very Mm -hmm. Catholic kind of, uh, yeah. especially sort of like old school Catholic. Yeah. You know, pre, uh, I can't remember what the council is and like Vatican two Vatican two. Yes. II, where yeah. they would like, mm-hmm. we can yeah. say the masses in our native language and things like that. No. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I have a, some of my extended family is, is uh, pre Vatican two Catholic. Oh God. Okay. Wow. Yeah. That's intense, man. Fun. Yeah. But I, I had this note that like, 
even with like the modern breakthroughs we've had in medication, the modern breakthroughs we've had like psychoanalysis and psychotherapy, like the idea that those things on their own are still not enough to be an actual cure that someone like Amanda, who is in fact a drug addict as Danny Glover <laughs> so aptly put it, like the best line delivery of any. You are in fact a drug addict. And then he calls her Mandy, which she did not invite him to mm-hmm. do. And it really bugs me. Yeah. Sorry. Getting very form- getting very informal there with her. <laughs> this idea that like, okay, like we could send you to rehabilitation and you could overcome your addiction. We could do intensive psychotherapy and because addiction is a symptom, it's caused by other pain. It's masking this other pain that we're trying to overcome, but that wouldn't be enough. Like in order to truly be redeemed and truly move ahead, you have to suffer first. And the last note I have on it is only through suffering, we become like Christ, that we take on his characteristics and that we are the, the quote that came up in a number of the articles I read is offer ourselves up through pain and through suffering. And that when we do that, that is when he is by our side uh, and only truly by our side. And it's like a really fucked up way to think about redemption, but it seems to be the through line in each of these movies. Yeah, and I don't know if James Wan is Catholic, but I wonder because you think about putting that next to The Conjuring, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which, as you said in the past, Mike, is Catholic superhero movies. Yeah, it's Wonder Twin um, Powers Activate, form yes. of like a pedophile that we covered up for years. <laughs> and, you know, shape of a charlatan huckster, you know. For example... For example. Um, yeah. So, yes. No. Redemptive suffering. Hell Catholic. Also, yeah. does Jigsaw think he's Christ? Maybe. I mean, he dang near rises from the dead, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. He literally does at the end of this yeah. movie. He kind of gets right. up. Mm-hmm. I'd be fascinated to take a deep dive into like the moralism and some of the kind of like puritanical streak that does tend to run through James Wan's films. Um, There's definitely something I think to be said there that there seems to be, if not like a right wing ideology. And I know like Nolan gets accused of this. Like there seems to be like a, if not a implicit conservatism or explicit conservatism, maybe a, way of saying that like well these things are bad but necessary and i think that you can say that there's some of that in one's movies but it tends to be on a more individual scale you're looking at like more of like moral purity uh, than you are say it like systemic i don't know if that makes any sense but you start yeah, maybe to see someday someone should write about that yeah have you written about that, Ariel? Is I that haven't, what you're but okay. now the wheels are turning. <laughs> now the wheels are turning? Um, well, we'll I did a up series on the religion in Wes Craven films. Maybe I could do, do one on... Yes, <laughs> send over those it. links, okay? Um, 
All right. So that went a little, again, like, I don't think you're going to get like this. Most of the Saw podcast I listened to was like, it was pretty neat when that dude got super cut up. Um, <laughs> right? Oh, if you come to the pod and the pendulum, you better be ready for yeah. education. In an education. Do we believe, do, is there ever a moment you believed it was Zep? I wish I could remember. And that's why I always like asking other people this question, because like this movie is so ingrained in my mind for so many years that I can't remember if I ever did think it was Zep. Did you guys? I think I did the first time I saw it that because uh, I was so used to him as his character on Lost, as you know, mm-hmm. the villain on Lost. And I was like, you know, but as it as it went on, I think I was like, I bet it's not him. I bet there's something else going on here because i didn't know i didn't know anything about any of the saw movies except you know sort of the reputation i guess so i didn't know specifics about jigsaw tobin bell any of that when i did see it um i was rather sheltered from these movies when i when they first came out uh for i don't know why even i was just like not like I mentioned in the last episode, I um, I wasn't watching a lot of horror at the time. Well, part of that was because at the time, and I don't know if I've ever said this before uh, on this show, but I was a church worship minister at I that time. I did not know that. Yeah, I was. Uh, yeah, so I was, uh, <laughs> I, I was, it's not that I was like not ever watching horror movies, but it there were certain kind that I didn't think I was going to go see. Uh, and okay. these, these were among them. Um, uh, but you know, so that was a long time ago, but it different feels like a different life, but fascinating. Uh, yeah. I was a, I was a church, uh, music director for about 10 years. So, uh, before I went into education, and so, or back into education, I should say. So, uh, yeah, so that's part of the reason. And it's not that the church, like, quote unquote, forbade horror or something like that. That's not the case at all. I was in mainline denominations, nothing that was, you know, that restrictive. So, uh, so, but at the same time, there was also like discussion about torture porn and things like that is just kind of being, yeah, this is, I'm concerned about the <laughs> people would have mm-hmm. those kind of concerned about this, yeah. these trends in society, things like that. Um, so, and this was just sort of lumped in with that. And I don't think this is torture porn. Uh, it's not one. I would agree. Yeah. I don't, the first movie in particular, no. um, yeah, it's, it's just not that, really at all i mean mm-hmm. there's nothing about it that makes you go oh yeah i want to go see someone get their face ripped off you know no. um so uh i can't remember where i, I think i've got people that. in the door well yeah, i think that it did. i think it did. that to your point like because like i specifically remember either like posters or billboards or screenshots of like amanda and the reverse bear trap and yeah your brain immediately if you're if you're gonna walk into a theater when you see that your brain immediately goes i want to see what happens when that thing opens up yeah so that like gets your butt in the seat why i agree with your assessment that, that this is not torture porn why do you both feel like this one 
although this might have kickstarted the trend. And it's kind of like the MC5 isn't necessarily a punk band. Uh, Iggy and the Stooges isn't necessarily punk rock. Sure. I don't think we get punk rock without those bands kind of being proto-punk. Why do we think like Saw might be like proto-torture porn where things would move in this direction? And why is it not quite, doesn't it quite not fill that designation? What do you think sets it apart or separates it? Well, I think torture porn is, uh, and I don't necessarily buy into that phrase anyway, because I mean, it's not like torture films didn't exist, you know, Mm -hmm. before 2003 or something. Um, but you know, torture films were always kind of like, you get a certain satisfaction or glee about seeing people, you know, in pain (laughs) and, and this, I don't think this does that. I, it, it's, it's a puzzle movie. It's them Mm -hmm. trying to figure out how to save themselves. There's not someone standing over them in a helpless situation, you know, ripping their teeth out one at a time. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it just, I don't know. Yeah. It has a gritty sort of griminess, I think that you would see in, I mean, I think of hostile as a torture film. Agree. Yeah. And I, I'm kind of repelled by that movie. Um, but this one, I don't know. It, it just, it, it doesn't, it doesn't repel me in that, in that mm-hmm. way. And so there's not a, there's not a total, yes, it's bleak, but there's not like, there's no escape. There's no way out. There's no, yeah. um, there's not, they have to use their own intelligence to try and figure this out. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a chance with them. Yep. So I don't know. Yeah. Ariel, this is your wheelhouse. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So what do you think, what, I guess, what do you think separates it from what would come after? Yeah, I think um, two really big things in particular, and I agree with everything you said, Brian. Um, I think two things I would add are, number one, Saw gives you a lot of room to breathe. The Mm -hmm. way it goes back and forth between the men who are trapped and the police procedural. We're not just looking at torture, torture, torture the whole time. There is torture in this movie, and we do see it. Mm Mm-hmm. But there's some room to breathe. And then I think the second thing is there's actually not that much on screen gore and violence and like um, watching somebody be tortured, especially as you compare it to what comes later in the decade. It's a lot more like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre where you think you saw more violence than Mm -hmm. you actually saw because Mm -hmm. of the way they implied it, right? Like, you don't really see Dr. Gordon get his foot sawed off, but a lot of people will tell you that they did see that. Right. You get two cuts of it. You get two shots of the blade going into the bone, but then you really focus on Carrie Ula's, Ellie's face. And Adam's reaction to this. And I think, like, it helped ease people in because then in the sequels you start to see more and there's less room to breathe. And so 
the whole decade, every torture porn movie that comes out is responding to the last one and also trying to build up and do the next thing. So there's just this big snowball effect of how they get crazier and crazier throughout. And you get something like The Collector in 2009, Mm. where it's nonstop. And we covered that previously. So I think Saw, like opens a lot of doors for people to go, huh, do you like this? Do you want more of this? You can come get this over here. But it also gives you an out. Do you think like films after this took the wrong lessons from Saw? I cannot say they took the wrong lessons because, (laughs) well, I mean, did they take the lessons that Juan and Juan L intended? Maybe not. But were they wrong? Not to me, you know, okay. they gave me my subgenre that I love. And so to me, I'm kind of like, well, no, I love what they took from it. And I love the way they built on it. But like, if I'm being like a good, like, film scholar, like, yeah, I guess maybe they took some of the wrong lessons. But don't <laughs> worry, because in about another 10 years, we're going to do all types of slow horror. So, like, mm-hmm. everybody, don't just keep <laughs> right. We're all going to be okay. We're going to get there. We'll get to and trauma. Trauma. Right. We're going to do trauma. <laughs> um, and after the 90s, man, I think we really just needed something different. I mean, you look at the movies that were coming out of the whole world. We talked a little bit about this before, what was coming out of France and Japan and Australia. Everybody wanted to see some nastiness on screen. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole world was hungry for it. And as as many, I I guess that's not true to say, because plenty of people even still are like, I don't want to watch those. But there were enough of us hungry for it that there was an entire global market of it. So did they take the wrong lessons? I can't say that. I'm curious, as a fan of the subgenre, what do you, Ariel, think of that term torture porn what do you think of it yeah. i'm just curious because i some people really bristle against that some people are like yeah sure you know yeah i that's i it's one of those things where like i would like there to be a different term mm-hmm. like i don't really love that like torture porn can come up when you google my name like that's not my favorite (laughs) like thing that exists for my like aunts and cousins and things um but it's just a naming of a subgenre like any other to me so i'm kind of like the person who named it didn't like those movies that's okay i think it's inaccurate because a lot of the movies that are called torture porn don't have much to do with either but it's sort of like, well, it's what we've got, so I've just gotten used to it, you know? Okay, yeah. Some people say yeah. it with pride, and I'm just kind of like, okay, sure. Now, okay. one thing I think that this film does really well, and one thing it predicts, aside from where horror would go over the next few years, is it really predicted the surveillance state. I think in a way that other films at the time weren't necessarily interrogating. And one of the things that stood out on rewatch of this and prep for the show was how just about every primary character in this movie is under some kind of watch by somebody. When I think of like Dr. Lawrence, he's being watched by Dr. Tap. Uh, I'm sorry, by Detective Tap. He's also being watched by Zeb. Uh, you have Adam who's watching Dr. Lawrence. 
you have Zeb who's being watched by Dr. Tap. Everyone is under some sort of surveillance. And then you get Adam and Dr. Lawrence in the bathroom and you come to find out they're being recorded and monitored. And you get these like security cameras and camera footage throughout without the camera, without the character's acknowledgement and without their consent to be filmed. And that is something that at the time you think of 2004, I think of the Patriot Act and I think of how easy it was for like, I think now how much harder it must be to commit any sort of crime because basically everything we do is being filmed and monitored that you can tell, even if you're not caught on camera doing the crime, you can pull up like traffic cameras and go, oh, where you were in this area at this time. I think of like footage like that and that there's no escape and there's no hiding and that Jigsaw himself is a voyeur. We see when we get to the room with like the safe and the numbers, there's a hole that's cut out in the wall and that that is where Jigsaw would basically hide. And it was very important to him to watch his subjects suffer that that was an important part of the process for him the suffering needed to be witnessed in order to be real now we we think of like all of us carry this device in our pockets that it mines all of our data it informs government agencies police and friends and loved ones. It's nice. I know where my daughter is at any given moment when she's out with friends, but we willingly give up like our identity, our location, and really all of our secrets. You know, I've told my wife, if I die unexpectedly, please delete my browsing history before <laughs> um, you do anything. Right. Um, we do that willingly now, which wasn't done here. And I think saw predicts where things are heading. There's a episode of the new season of the black mirror. Um, it's, I think it's the first one it's called, um, I can't remember the, the character's name. So the, the, it's just so-and-so is awful. And, mm-hmm. um, and basically it's the joke is, or the you can see it's kind of a funny episode is that she gives permission for her life to be fair filmed and turned into a TV show um, when she agreed to the the license agreement, you know, to, to use, you know, it, it's Netflix basically. And so when you agree to the terms and conditions, you agreed that, you know, we can steal your life. Yeah. And, and, and so it's obviously sort of the extreme version of what we actually do on a daily basis. So, yeah, I mean, I, cause who reads it, first of all? I mean, who reads every line of those things? And then second of all, uh, how often do we do that? Just, okay, yeah, because you can't use the service if you don't. So right. you just right. do it automatically now. Um, so South Park did a great episode about that some years ago. I'm sure. It's called yeah. Human Centipad. <laughs> <laughs> it was about how, like... The ter- agreeing to the terms and conditions got you put in a human centipede. It's I actually won't watch it. It's a gross episode. I love <laughs> South Park though. Excellent. <clears throat> yeah, I think um, you're spot on, Mike. About 
predicting the surveillance state, I mean, Jigsaw has to watch. And if it is redemptive suffering, like we were talking about before, I mean, as you were saying, like in Catholicism, Christ has to say, yes, your suffering is good enough. You check the suffering box. Now you're redeemed. Like, Similar to Jigsaw, he's not a set it and forget it guy. He wants to watch his experiments happen. Like he would watch his paint dry, I assume, and just like really patiently wait it out. Mm-hmm. And the title of the movie, yes, it's about the saw that Dr. Gordon uses to saw his foot, but it's also the past tense of C. Uh-huh. And it's about how Jigsaw has been watching these victims since before they even were aware of his existence so he could choose them and put him in his traps. He saw them. Great point. You're Mm -hmm. absolutely right. Well, the persons that are supposed to be surveilling detective tap. And I can't remember his partner's name. uh, Sing. Sing. Um, They must be like tap is like a top five worst cop in movie history, right? Like he's very bad at his job. Yeah. Like from, Assuming Dr. Gordon is guilty because like there was a pen on the crime scene um, (laughs) to having Jigsaw dead to rights and being like, hey, we've stumbled upon his, you know, murder planning for it. There is a guy that is like tied to a chair with drills pointed at his head. All of the uh, there's the puppet and the bike and all the fun stuff. And we even have like a nifty diorama, which is like, <laughs> I think it's the cutest thing ever. Like that I made me laugh. I want that diorama. You know? If I could have a movie prop, I want that one. We could make that. It's not to we scale. Could. I think it's what's disappointing. I think in the later <laughs> movies, because they do go back to the diorama, like this movie loves a diorama. Oh, yes. They do get to scale. But here you just have like, two Ken dolls basically in a shoebox, Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, this is Knuff right here. So, um, and they have them and they're like, he's like, let's see what he does. Like, what is this horse shit? Like, what are we doing here? Yeah. Um, <laughs> that was a long pause. Like, yeah. Well, you froze. You for froze a second. up a bit. You froze oh, up for okay. a second. Yeah, that's all. And I was like, "Is he still talking?" Um, no, I. The saw films uh, don't uh, look at cops in a very uh, positive light, and it does start with Detective Tap and yeah. Sing, and like. You know, it's very sad that his partner dies. Of course, it's very sad, and that would rock anybody's world. But, like, the way he he deals with it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, the way he deals with it is just, like, to go all in on hunting this one man and giving up the whole rest of his life. Like, Detective Mm -hmm. Tap, you need a hobby. Yeah. And he's told, like, you need a girlfriend. Like, before, this thing is like, you need to date um and it's a great death like saying gets this great like you know like shotgun almost like elmer fudd bugs bunny style like whoopsie right. type of death it's really cool and it's very bloody um and meanwhile like tap gets his throat slit which i don't know how yes. you survive that but god love you Spite. Yeah. And even like at the end of the movie, he gets the drop on Zep and still ends up dead because he can't overpower him. 
and gets like shot in the belly. And it's like, my God, like you are really terrible. Like maybe <laughs> he was in fact too old for this shit. It's basically what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. There needed to be like a deleted scene where he's like, I'm just five days for retirement once we wrap up this case. <laughs> right. You know? Of course. And Detective Singh's wife was pregnant, of course. Of course. That's, right. That yeah. has to be I the other side. Yeah. I don't see anyone marrying Detective Singh, to be quite Aww, honest. Like on. he's just kind of well he, he dude always plays angry people. Like every role you ever see him in, like he's just <laughs> super angry. I want to get something you said earlier in the episode about like Hitchcockian yes you know i got a chance to watch rear window in theaters the other night because we're recording this over two different two different days listeners and at the end of rear window jimmy stewart you know my man james big james as he liked to be called um i know what you're going with this yeah how does he hold off raymond burr he takes out the flashbulb Flash and he bulb, starts yeah. flashing that motherfucker in the dark, blinding his prey. And what do we see Adam do in this exactly movie? Exactly that. Yeah. With the creepy camera sound, which is my favorite sound yep. on earth. So there's your Hitchcockian moment. So you were That's indeed true. right. And I was wrong to dismiss that. I <laughs> you didn't dismiss it. You tried to encourage it, but I talked a lot of shit yeah. and I couldn't back it up. <laughs> this is where we'll like, you can call Rebecca on the helpline. Like it's yeah. like, who wants to be a millionaire? A and then Help she can come in and make a that. Hitchcock um, connection. Yeah. Do we think Detective Gordon cheated on his wife? He's like very adamant that he I didn't. Did cheat on her. Yes. Um, I he actually have like a complicated answer. What's that? I said I, he seems like the kind of guy that would when they show him before yeah. the room, you know, when he's yeah. you know, just kind of in his yeah. regular asshole life, yeah. you know. What do you think, Ariel? I mean, uh, what is the contract of their marriage and what violates that contract, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what is cheating? What mm. counts? To me, if my husband went to a hotel room with the intention of cheating, but didn't technically do it, that's cheating. Okay. Like, that's a violation of the contract. Yep. We're not doing this jigsaw style technically mm-hmm. technicalities. <laughs> yes. Technically so, speaking, like, she just <laughs> fell on my penis when I was lying down. Right. Right. Like, right. I Oops. Oh, I never thrusted. Right. Sorry. So, did not mean to be. <laughs> no, I mean, but like that's that is like where Dr. Gordon's taking it, yeah. right? Like, and that's why Adam's response is like so great, where Adam's like, I don't care if you did or didn't. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm pretty sure that his wife, Allie, would be pissed either way. Yeah. Is it worse if he actually goes through with it and has sex with the person he went to the hotel room with? Sure. Yeah, yes. I think that's a worse violation. Mm-hmm. But what counts as cheating in their relationship? I don't know. That would count in mine. Yeah. I would say, number one, like the pictures Adam gets, like there's no incriminating evidence. Like <laughs> no. he gets pictures of him like walking to work, standing and in a like, parking lot. Drinking a Starbucks. <laughs> you know, like you're violating your diet and that's why you look a little, you know. <laughs> Like, these aren't exactly incriminating. Like, my wife would be pissed if I got a coffee and then didn't bring her one. Like, that would be like, oh, come on. That's the violation. I actually did get in an, not an argument, like a play fight with my wife. Like, she took 
our daughter for ice cream and didn't bring me back one. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. Yeah. Crowns for we're over. Um, and I'm like, can you imagine the shit storm that would ignite if I took Ada for ice cream and didn't bring you back one, like you would murder me and you're like, totally cool. And she's like, well, you're trying to lose weight. And I'm like, Oh, not cool. Not not cool. Yeah. That's a fine. I I get that a Um, lot. (laughs) So we didn't get you something because we know you're not. Okay. Well, you could have asked. You could have asked. asked. You could have asked, right? Anyway, I don't think Dr. Gordon cheated on his wife that time. Mm And I think, you know, I agree with you. Like, he's gone there with the intention to cheat. And maybe he'll be like, after that, he'll be like, well, you know what? I'm not going to do this anymore. Blah, blah, blah. Whatever. But it's important to note that about five or six months have passed since his interrogation and that night when he's kind of kidnapped, right? So in that yeah. he might have never cheated with that woman because I think that there's a vast array of orderlies and interns that are there uh, that he would have his pick of as like a handsome head of like surgery he would mm-hmm. easily be able to use his po- violate his power and in, in, in take advantage of young women uh in his role because he, he, earlier in the movie he says to his lawyer played by the wonderful benito martinez who is david aceveda in the show the shield he's like well you know i wasn't at the hospital i was visiting with someone who wasn't my wife so i think he says right there like i've cheated before and when he's like i didn't cheat on my wife like he could have just used the phrase of that time at the end of it like it's a technicality that dude was sticking his pen in as many (laughs) traps as humanly possible he was leaving that pen light all over sausage yeah that pen light was yeah he that was his you know like derek jeter used to give like when derek jeter would have young women over and then send them on their way the next day like there'd be a gift basket in the limousine for them like thanks he had a great time but like this is it um you know and it's probably a really good like edible arrangements like in a limousine in a limo yeah like Dr. Nice. Gordon was like leaving that pen everywhere. You know, he was like, <laughs> you know, something to remember me by. Here's my pen. Um, that was what was going on with Dr. Gordon. So I think that's true. <laughs> all right. What do we make of the end of the, the, the end of this movie? Starting with like, you know, we kind of know what's coming when Gordon's like, he doesn't want us to saw through the chain. He wants to saw through our feet. Like that's an oh shit moment when yeah. we see it happen. Like that's pretty crazy, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's quite a moment uh, that, you know, I kind of, yeah, I knew that was coming. I think that might've been in the trailer uh, or like where he says he wants us to saw through our feet, I believe was in the trailer. Cause I mm-hmm. remember going in knowing that. Um, but when it's, <laughs> when he's going for it, when he wraps that shirt around it and, you know, bites down on it. Yeah. That's, that's real yeah. something. I, I mean, I, I think the ending of this movie is perfect. Um, Dr. Gordon is a surgeon and you think like you see him in his hospital where everything is clean. He has 
tools and information at his disposal. He has an entire staff. People are looking to him for answers. And then you contrast that with him in the bathroom making a tourniquet out of a dirty shirt so he can saw his own foot off with a nasty old saw that was Mm -hmm. in a toilet. And it's like, yes, he's a surgeon. He knows where to cut. He knows how to make a tourniquet. But nothing can, like, replicate the tools that he needs to do that correctly and the environment he needs to do that correctly. But he's still like, this is the only way I can survive. I have to try. And it makes you wonder while you're watching it. You're like, could I do that? Would I do that? What would I try? And it's just, it's such a tense moment that just builds, like, exponentially. Mm -hmm. I don't know if anything could prepare you for the pain of that either. I mean, no No. matter how much, I mean, obviously his patients are anesthetized. So, uh, you know, they're not screaming in pain while he's cutting into them. Uh, But just, I think we've all had a, had a paper cut and just imagine that being, you you know, yeah, yeah, two billion times more painful. Yeah. you know, and having to do it to yourself, not on accident. You have to deliberately do it and you have to keep going. I mean, it's like the 127 hours story where he has to cut off his own arm to escape, you know, and that was <laughs> reality. I mean, just, you yeah. just imagine having to every, every fiber of your being would say, be telling you not to do this. You have mm-hmm. to stop because uh, of this is not how you're how this is supposed to go. Um, I, I can't even, I don't know that I would be able to do it. I'd probably, I don't think I could starve to death. Like, yeah. you know, and that's the dilemma you see throughout these movies. Like what yeah. everyone is asked to do is so far above and beyond. Like what you think the threshold of like human pain and mental pain, like, that's what would stop people in their tracks. Like I know, like I'd rather die than have to like saw my own foot off because of like, I would just pass out. I just wouldn't be able to do it. I wouldn't have the stomach to do it. And I think like to Wannell's credit, like he really sells it too. Like he is the audience. Like he's our surrogate at that moment. He can see what we can't and his expression and the way he plays it lets us know that like this is every bit as horrible as we could possibly imagine it. And then it's unfortunate because you get a really bad, like caked on makeup job. Like, like, Oh, sure. Sure. The, the the white pale. He kind of looks a bit like a circus clown. Like I don't Mm -hmm. mean that facetiously, like it's so, and then it's not necessarily like, this is the part of the movie where like Carrie Euglis is like, he's like, really going for it and it like a few more this is where you need a few more takes like hey we maybe want to like dial this down a little bit he's like "Uh, i need to go now like he's just like why does he have bronchitis all of a sudden he sounds like donald pleasance in halloween six which he did like on death's door you know he's like that's what he sounds he's he's channeling like old man loomis and it's not pretty (laughs) in that moment but then we have the real shocker, which is the twist, Adam mm-hmm. being the only one, the bear. And I rewound it a few times, like watching it and watching Jigsaw kind of get up on all fours in the background as we're focused on Adam 
what do we remember? Like, this is what, this is why this movie is so memorable. I think mm-hmm. it's like it re the twist really works. Yeah, it really sticks the landing here. I'd got chills just now, just thinking yeah. about it. Mm-hmm. Do you buy it? Like aside from just being like, Holy shit, that's really cool. Do you buy it as like a, you know, like, okay, I can see how this all comes together and makes sense. I buy it as much as I buy anything else in the movie. Mm-hmm. Well, Jigsaw has been, you know, established as an as a incredibly patient, you know, psychopathic killer. Here, yeah. I mean, so I I think he has sort of like the patience of the damned here, you yeah. know, so to speak. And so that I I buy it definitely that he would do that, and that he would just get up so calmly and say you know, the key to that chain is over there. Um, yeah. It's just, <laughs> which again, I don't think it's fair. I don't think that's fair, fair at all. It's not fair. And um, that's one of the things that I struggle with, with Jigsaw is that it's almost like he deigns some people are going to have an actual way out and other people won't. Yep. Yeah. You know, if they're not, if he deems them unworthy somehow. Yeah. Um, so you're right and i think he he, i think he deems adam unworthy yeah (laughs) and adam who's technically not part of the game right technically doesn't isn't given an assignment he's not you know and it is a it's a not a cheat from a storytelling device like i think you can see like it's a little bit like the reveal in friday the 13th in that like you get mrs Voorhees, who hasn't been a part of the movie to that point and she's revealed as the killer and what is supposed to be a whodunit it's like the killer is this person you've never met before in any frame of the movie you only see john for like 30 seconds comatose in a hospital bed so i don't think there's any way you would ever suspect that it was him yet i don't feel cheated i don't feel like juan and Wanell pulled the rug out from under me if anything i feel like what a brilliant way to do it like wow i that's really cool it's misdirection yeah no it's like those um like i think of those riddles that are like oh he did a man's dead and there's a puddle of water right it's like Mm -hmm. oh he stood on a block of ice you know and it it's like if you thought about it forever, you might not figure mm-hmm. it out because there's no really reason to, but mm-hmm. it isn't a cheat. And so it does work. It's just yeah. perfect. Yep. Yeah. When I think of like how it cheats, I think it cheats the players of the game. I think. Oh, you know, yeah. Right, sure. right. Jigsaw yeah, is a yeah. cheater. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not Jigsaw, everybody yeah. knows the rules. They don't have all the rules in front of them. And they don't even know they're playing. They haven't consented to play the game. That's where the Absolutely. real cheat is. It's like, it can only be a game if everybody agrees to play. Um, yep. I just have a couple other things to talk about here that I think really make this movie work. And I think one of them is the iconography of the movie. Mm-hmm. I think that is one of the things that they get right 
in that they realize like all of the really good horror villains and the horror franchises have something you can point to. You have like the chainsaw and Texas chainsaw massacre, the hockey mask, Freddie's glove and fedora and sweater. Michael's like blank expressionless mask. And I think we were in ghost face, like the ghost face killer. I think we were itching for something like that again, as horror yes. fans, like we were ready for that. And you get, a few things here you get the pig mask which would go on to play a pretty big role in all of the movies but also like billy the puppet and which he's never named billy but like that's what they would call him on set so we all kind of know what about the puppet works like why is this doll so effective and so creepy and gosh was i ever skeptical about the puppet before mm-hmm. before I saw the movie, but it really works in the movie. Yeah. So somehow when I saw the trailer or whatever, I was like, "Well, that's kind of mm-hmm. silly," but it it really works in the movie. Yeah. So. Puppets are creepy anyway because it's this uncanny valley of like mm-hmm. you look sort of like a person, but you're not a person. And Billy the puppet stretches that even further by riding a tricycle. Um. His mouth moves when he talks and he turns his head to look at you. He'll mm-hmm. like enter the room to come see you. So he's a creepy puppet anyway, and it's a handmade prop, so it looks really good. Mm-hmm. And then he does all these like sort of human adjacent things with Jigsaw's voice, you know, playing in the background. And you're just like, is this puppet alive? Like with everything I've just been through, is there now a live puppet here that I have to contend yeah, is with? There's supernatural sure. element. Too. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. It works. I think that to your point, like the fact that it, like coming in on the bike and, you know, you think immediately of like the Muppet movie and like Kermit, like riding <laughs> the bike and now you have it used to this like perverse effect. And then, I think what sells it for me is like Billy on the television screen explaining the yeah. rules of the game and yeah. using like Tobin Bell's voice through a distortion device is what really sells it is I think is what really makes it work. And, you know, that would obviously carry through for the next seven movies in this series. And then he doesn't make an appearance in Spiral as far he as I remember. Not. No, no, he, he does, does not, not, which we'll talk about in a little while when we get to we that will. movie. And we're going to have some disagreements on that, which I'm now that I'm all caught up. So and the other thing I think we need to talk about is the score of this movie. I mm. have not been able to get it out of my head like that main theme. It has been like stuck in my head since I've been listening to it, like in pre- preparation for the show. So the score is it's done by Charlie Clauser, Charlie Clauser, who got his start really working with like Rob Zombie with White Zombie and Trent Reznor in Nine Inch Nails, where he would come in and do a lot of engineering work and he would add like industrial layers to their music. And he talked about when he was hired for this, like he had seen, they showed him like a work print of the movie and Klauser talked about really getting it. And mm-hmm. he said that in Jigsaw, he saw someone that was a dark hero with a twisted morality. And I think the theme reflects that, right? What do we think of like the use of the score here? 
I use the so the theme is called Hello's Up, and I mm-hmm. use Hello's Up to like pump myself up. Like if I needed like walkout music for any reason, mm-hmm. or like I love this soundtrack so much. And when Hello's Up starts to play during the reveal, mm-hmm. like I'm like ten percent happier. Like I just like gain a level of happiness yep. in my life because it just works so well and I love it so much. Um I something that I think works really well about Hello's app in particular is and I'm not like actually Brian, I should probably leave this to you because you're the music person and I feel like don't I'm worry not about qualified it. Don't don't no, 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 no. Don't don't even no. <laughs> go I, go ahead. I'd love to hear Okay. <laughs> I just like I don't know music like terms and things but it sort of like builds in a way that really sort of like gets you really excited and then it sort of just like crescendos and breaks and Mm -hmm. then it's like off to the races Mm -hmm. so whatever that musically is called this song does that for me oh i think that you described it very well so yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) it it has that quiet soft almost like mournful start to with just like and i don't think that it's an orchestral score i think that everything in this is done through midi and through like i think it's like an electronically composed score but you hear these like strings and they're soft they're mournful and then they they sound authentic too they don't sound they don't they don't sound like synthesized strings they Mm. they sound very authentic so no But then you have like, and I can't hear it without thinking of like, and it's a hallmark that all the Saw movies would use like the last couple minutes of the movie. Like when that, when Hello Zep kicks in, you know, you're going to get a quick cut flashback, the reveal and everything's (laughs) going to snap into place. And some movies that works really well. And you're like, oh shit, like that makes sense. And we'll talk about like, I think the only time Jigsaw plays kind of fair is in the second movie, which we'll talk about next episode. Because he literally says, all you need to do is this one thing. And yes. he does. And, you know, it's fucking... If there's one problem with, like, the later saw way too much Donnie Wahlberg, I was definitely hanging tough <laughs> through some of his stuff. Um, we're going to get a lot of new kids puns next episode. I'm Good. just... <laughs> preparing you right now um you i can't help but see like all of the reveal in this and it really works and like watching it snap together kind of like this like like the last few pieces like literally of a jigsaw puzzle like seeing those come into place and you see the big picture and you step back from it and you're like well that was brilliant like that was really well done and i think like that's why this movie is so fun to me the other thing about Klauser's score is he uses a lot of like non-diegetic sounds. Yes. A lot of like upsetting, harsh, metallic sounds that you think are a point of entry. Like you think that they should be part of like the in-world universe, but they're just 
being used in order to amplify the tension and the fear that's going on. And I think like other movies that do that really well, like a nightmare on Elm street, you think of like Freddie yeah. scraping mm-hmm. his gloves. You yeah. think of like the whirring sound and the crashing sounds in the Texas chainsaw massacre movie. Yeah. yeah. Where like you hear that whirring sound and you're immediately like, I don't know what that is. I don't like it. And I don't mm-hmm. want more of this. Yes. Session nine, I would add to that. It uses um, a lot of, and I, I actually, I wrote a piece on session nine and I got a, I said something tiny about the music and the composer actually wrote me and said, yeah, thank you for noticing that. And it was, it was like, yeah, you're welcome. Um, I kind of got that because you said it in a commentary, but okay. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was, uh, but yeah, they do use um, uh, some of the, some of the music in it is yeah. is like more like sound effects. There's a yeah. there's sort of this blurring of the lines between the sound effects and the musical score that yeah. I really like. A text chainsaw definitely does. Yeah, um, that's a big piece of that score. And it's it's a texture here that I think works really well because it fits the in-world universe of the movie. Like this is a harsh world. It's a concrete world. It's made up of like concrete and porcelain and metal and glass. Mm -hmm. And there's no sunlight. There's no natural light whatsoever. When it, when it, um, when you see the outside, it's dark and it's pouring. It's not just raining. It's a torrential downpour. Right. And I guess that leads me to my last thing the influences of this movie would go on to be very influential in the next few years, but there are a number of movies that I think it draws from the obvious one is David Fincher in seven, right? I don't think you have this movie. If you don't have, it's almost like they kind of, I don't want to say cribbed from it. Um, but like, I think they cribbed from it. Like you definitely have that idea. Sure. Except instead of focusing on the cops, you're focusing on the victims. Yep. But I also think like the sixth sense and that you have like everything builds to a great reveal that's going to have you talking at the end of the movie. Uh, Mad Max, like these are Australian filmmakers. You have at the end of the first Mad Max, um, Max throwing a hacksaw to the villain who's tied to the back of a car saying you can either cut off your foot or get dragged through the streets like live or die. Make your choice, basically. I have never um, thought wow. of that. So that, yeah, that nice. didn't dawn on me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. And then even like the aesthetic of like the Blair Witch Project and sure. not in terms of like anything with the tone of the movie, but Oh, we can do something with a small cast that's self-contained that doesn't cost a lot of money. And all of these movies I think would go on to really influence saw to a large extent, both in the themes of the movie and the visual aesthetic of the movie. And in terms of like what they were able to do, is there anything else we can think of like any other movies that you can really point to, you know, maybe home alone too, with all the traps. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually um, I do have one. This is a a movie from 1971 called the abominable Dr. Fibes where uh, Vincent price um, plays this guy who um, he he's, 
it, and it's a revenge movie. He's taking revenge mm-hmm. because on these doctors who failed to save his wife's life after a car accident. So he puts them in all these different kinds of contraptions um, based on, in that case, they're based on, uh, well, another sort of religious overtone that like in this is uh, based on the 10 plagues of Egypt. And okay. so like he, uh, it's a great movie. It's very, it's campy. It's, it's much more campy than this. Uh, of course with, uh, Vincent Price, uh, and he's, he's got this, uh, amazing lair where he's got a, he plays the organ, like the Phantom of the Opera. And, mm-hmm. you know, he has a fake face he can put on and it's amazing. I've they're, never they're both seen good. it. Dr. Fives I've... rises again, isn't quite as good, but they're both good. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I I've love, never heard of this and oh, it sounds amazing. It, it's fantastic. I mean, it's, it's, uh, Vincent Price and Joseph Cotton and, um, yeah, it's great. I love I that think, movie because I love Vincent Price and I love the idea of Vincent Price. Like one of my favorite things to watch is a clip on YouTube of Christopher Lee is doing, this is your life. And oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Vincent Price comes out and the joy yeah. that the two, and I have like a cookbook from Vincent Price mm-hmm. and his daughter. They have the same, they I, have the same birthday. I don't, his daughter and Vincent Price or Christopher <laughs> no, Lee? No, no, Vincent and, Price and Christopher Lee. Okay. Oh, um, they, have the, they have the same birthday 10 years two, apart. Two gentlemen apart. Yeah. that just like have a mutual love and respect. But I yeah. haven't watched a lot of his movies and like, Brian, maybe you and I sit down at the end of the year and we plan like we did with John Carpenter in June. We do like a four film Vincent Price retrospective oh. like next year as we plan oh, okay. ahead. I, I, that I'm would also, be great because I don't think I've seen yeah. a lot of Vincent Price movies. Witchfinder General, House on Witch, Haunted Hill. Witchfinder yeah. General, House on Haunted Hill, Mask of the Red Death, Corman movie, and Abominable Dr. Fives are the four I would choose. All right. Book it. We'll book that for next year. <laughs> Um, I'm also giggling because like we were just talking Texas Chainsaw Massacre and I have my phone open and there's a clip on AEW wrestling right now and they're doing a promotion with the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre game and Leatherface has literally just come out and attacked like Matt Hart, Jeff Hardy with the chainsaw and it's like chasing him up the ramp and it's like Jeff amazing or maybe it's maybe it's not one of the hardys but like hardy's in the ring but like he's literally chasing him it's really silly uh it reminds me of like when robocop came out in wcw in the 90s with sting it's really you gotta love a crossover (laughs) promo yeah god love it um all right on that note, as we kind of like talk Texas Chainsaw, so we always end up doing somehow, <laughs> yeah, somehow. End up talking about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, do we have anything else you want to bring up? Anything that we want to cover? Just strap in, everybody, for mm-hmm. the rest of the series. Yeah. Like we're we're in it. We're doing it. I'm excited. Yeah. I am super excited. I am and now that like I I took those those days in between part one and part two of recording this and like just strap myself in and, and binged all of the saw movies and just emerge from my basement bleary eyed <laughs> and i'm With like what is this thing? do you have a springboard yeah. now <laughs> oh my goodness uh yeah we have like the whole timeline it's we we did it all uh, i'm very 
I'm walking into the rest of the series like way more excited to talk about a number of these entries. Good. But we'll I'm be so getting glad. to that in the coming weeks. Um, yes. Before we do that, Brian, what do you have coming up with all of your writing and with the Movies for Life? Oh, well, um, well, out there now, I have uh, a piece uh, on King Kong and a local legend around here, Ivan the Gorilla, uh, that uh, it's just kind of a personal piece that I went okay. for. And uh, so that was kind of neato. That's on Manor Vellum. Um, but I've got this Ivan, an actual gorilla, or just like he a was, hairy he, guy. He was he was an actual gorilla that uh, lived in a uh, little enclosure in a shopping center out here in the Tacoma That's area. Very and sad. So, yeah, it's actually the story about. Part of it is me sharing about how you know the community sort of you know realized, hey, this is wrong. Maybe we should. Mm-hmm. Uh, let him be free somewhere. Uh, so the, the, the movie, the one and only Ivan, the Disney film with Brian Cranston, mm-hmm. um, is very loosely based on, uh, the real Ivan, the gorilla. So, uh, but he, uh, he would was, he, uh, he was transferred into a zoo in Atlanta. And, uh, would he yeah. ever get out and just like get some Mrs. Fields? Well, we would hope. <laughs> I, I hope so. Yeah, um, I would totally be like, "There's a gorilla on the loose, and he's yeah. eating Mr. Fe- Mrs. Fields." <laughs> that's what I would do. Yeah. But you know, that's either here or there. And what about movies for life? Well, um, I also want to mention I've mentioned uh, Val Luton a couple times. I recently did a piece for Bloody Disgusting on the Seventh Victim, um, which I is I, I I think a pretty it it went deeper than I expected it to, but it's uh, mm-hmm. something that I hope, uh, but people have seemed to really respond to that. Anyway, um, over at Movies for Life, we just dropped our episode on our entire watch through of The Sopranos, uh, which Very cool. was a wonderful conversation. Uh, Michelle's first time watching it, my second ever, but it's been like 20 years since I watched it. So is it a it, 30 hour long episode? No, we, we actually <laughs> cut it down to under three. So, I mean, okay. it's amazing right. that it's under three, but we cover a lot of ground. Um, and I really enjoyed doing that one. Um, and then we've got some cool stuff coming up for yeah. spooky season. We've, we're planning on kind of going all out during spooky season during October, uh, and doing a show every week, uh, which we normally do every other week. So yeah, it's Very been great. Cool. Ariel, as you get ready for your first Fright Fest, what else do you have going on? Oh, my gosh. Well, it is festival season. So at Ghouls Magazine, there's just a lot of like films at different festivals being covered right now. Mm -hmm. Um, Our theme for August is mind horror. But August is quickly getting away from us already. And September is going to be slashers. And so I feel like we're going to go from festival season into Mm -hmm. slashers. But who knows? We'll see what happens with that. Um, Yeah, I don't know. Right now, I'm just really focused on like getting rid of COVID and getting to Fright Fest. (laughs) Excellent. All right. And I'll say that we are going to have a... uh, number of ghouls on uh, in the coming episodes like the ghouls team will be pretty much taking over the show which i think is awesome awesome and we will also be running a promotion with ghouls in order to kind of 
give listeners a chance to check out their site and all the great writing and material over there. So I think we'll have that up and going with our second episode on saw. Although if I get the code, check the show notes. Um, if I don't have an announcement right now, but if like I get that the go ahead before this post, like you can click on it from the show notes. So go ahead and check that. Yes. Love it. So listeners, you can follow us at our site, uh, podinthependulum.com. It's where we have all of our previous shows listed. Uh, It's very easy to kind of comb through the archives and all 190 plus bonus episodes. Uh, They're all up there for your easy perusal. Uh, Follow us over on Twitter at pod and penned. And I believe we'll have a blue ski up soon as well. We'll do some more social media and promotion in the coming weeks as well. But if you've really enjoyed this episode, please take a minute and rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. When you give us a five-star rating, that goes a ways to having listeners find us and discover the show. And if you have a minute, please take a few minutes and and just kind of jot down a few sentences about why you enjoy the show, like what it is you really like about it, what you want to see us do. Uh, Again, not only does it help listeners like find us, but it also... um, it also like it just knows we're on the right track. It kind of can be rewarding. Mm-hmm. We got a, a really nice review from David over in the UK recently who said like we've become one of his favorite shows. And I really appreciate that. So thank oh, you for that. Thank you so much. Um, you know, but not only can you, can you support us with kindness, you can also support us with money. <laughs> and I'll take money. Um, if you want more of us and you want to hear some bonus features and some bonus episodes, or you just want to give us your money, you can go to patreon.com slash pod and the pendulum. And we have a ton of bonus content that's already up there. We're adding more every month. I'll be sitting down with Rachel later this week. We're going to talk about her favorite subject, Charles Bronson. And we're going to do the original death wish for y'all as a bonus episode and i'll have i think one more thing that i'm going to post up there for the month of august as well so go to patreon.com slash pod and the pendulum um that is it for now we've done it we've covered the first saw it's one of our kind of mega episodes i think it's earned it um we've played a game we've survived we've made through the puzzles (laughs) we made made a choice tracks we made a choice we definitely if there's something that we did this several episode, choices yeah. we made several choices this episode yeah and i think we made the right choices so we are out of here y'all have a great one